Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's edition of After the Final Whistle. I am your host, Brad Clear. It is Saturday, August 3rd, and I am back here today to look at the NBA offseason for each team in the Eastern Conference. We'll go through every team alphabetically based on their city's name. Uh, Take a look at the moves they made this offseason, their drafts, signings, cap maneuvering, all of that good stuff. Um, As always, you can follow me on Twitter at bradclear underscore. Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. And if you wanted to search for this podcast on iTunes, you could do so by searching after the final whistle with Bradley Clear. Clear again spelled K-L-I-E-R. And as always, you can listen to the show on podcasts.com. So let's get right into it. Let's start off with the Atlanta Hawks. So the first thing I want to talk about with the Atlanta Hawks is their draft. Came out of the draft with DeAndre Hunter, Cameron Reddish, and Bruno Fernando. And the first thing that really to me stands out with this draft is the trade up to get up and get DeAndre Hunter. Because they came into this draft with pick 8, with pick 10, with pick 17, and with pick 35. And they made the move. They sort of, what they did was in a way, they, they kind of cashed in uh, a lot of their assets and ammunition um, in this draft and moving forward. They, they really cashed in that significant quantity of assets for this move to get up there and get DeAndre Hunter. Pick 8, pick 17, pick 35, and what will likely turn into Cleveland's 2021 and 2022 second-round picks, valuable second-round picks right there, as well as taking on the contract of Solomon Hill, all to get up to number four to select DeAndre Hunter. And when I mentioned that they cashed in a lot of their assets and their ammunition to do this trade-up, you look at their uh, coming drafts, they are pretty much out of the second round until 2022, not pretty much, they are out of the second round until 2022. Uh, They have Brooklyn's first, likely coming this year, uh, almost definitely coming this year, with the Torian Prince-Allen Crab trade. So, no real factor in the second round until 2022, and over the next six years, as of right now, have no outside incoming first round picks and solely have their own first-round pick in each year. So, for this year, coming up in 2020, and then 2021, they're going to have their own first each year, and they'll have Brooklyn's first this year, unless they make another move. And so, with that in mind, they really did cash in a lot of the assets and ammunition they had at their disposal to make this trade-up for Hunter. And, to me, I'm not super crazy about cashing in such a great amount of ammo uh, in terms of draft capital to move up for a player in Hunter who, yes, he does fit them perfectly, but he doesn't possess a ton of upside to me. He'll be a very effective NBA player, but the massive upside that you would make such a move to get a player like, I don't I don't see Hunter as someone possessing a ton of upside, as despite the fact that he fits them perfectly and will be a productive NBA player. But the Hawks looked at it and said, look, this is a guy that we can identify as he fits into our team. We like him a lot. He'd fit us perfectly. Let's get up there and get him whatever it costs 
at a reasonable amount, and they determined that was a reasonable amount to trade up to get him. Uh, really, for me, the Hawks' number one need coming into this offseason and building out what will end up being their long-term group is they needed to add defense because you have Trey Young, who you're going to have to compensate for his non-existent defensive ability. There's not really a defensive presence on the interior. And outside of Kevin Herter, there really wasn't a defensive presence on the perimeter. And now they added two guys in this draft, in DeAndre Hunter and Cam Reddish, especially DeAndre Hunter, who, in looking at their perimeter defense, they can defend at a high level on the perimeter across multiple positions, across three positions. And again, you need to add as much defense as possible to alleviate the impact that Trey Young's non-existent defense will have on your team moving forward. Both Hunter and Reddish, they fit the Hawks' style of play like a glove. They both can shoot threes. They both can play fast. This Hawks team shoots a ton of threes, and they play with a ton of pace. They play a modern, youthful, athletic, fast game. And both of these guys seamlessly fit into that style of play. And this is something that I've said on Twitter before. When you can draft guys or acquire guys who are young that fit into your style of play that your team is carrying out, that allows your team to develop and those players individually to develop at a faster rate. Because it's not, hey, let's get the talent and figure it out later. It's, okay, here's our team. Here's the spots we need to fill. This player has this skill set. Put him in there. That's his role. The player knows his role right away. Um, the team style of play can continue to develop with that player in that role. So you can develop as a team quicker, and the player can develop as an individual quicker. Um, and that's what's happening here with the Hawks in acquiring DeAndre Hunter and Cameron Reddish in the draft. These two guys fit this team perfectly. And you now have Kevin Herter, you have DeAndre Hunter, and you have Cameron Reddish across the perimeter, all as guys who can defend, who can shoot threes at a high level. And we look at this modern NBA. You can never have enough athletic, long, versatile three-point shooting wings that can defend in the NBA. You can never have enough of them. The Hawks now have three of them for their long-term uh, court. And looking at the overall offseason, the Hawks, looking at all of their moves put together, the core of their team, Trey Young, Kevin Herter, John Collins, stayed intact. They added needed, or needed, needed player types and skills around those three guys that fit well with them, fit well with the team that they have in place, the three-point shooting uh, pace-oriented style of play that they have, these new pieces in Hunter and Reddish fit perfectly. Moving off of Hunter and Reddish, I really like their move to get in at pick 34 from the Sixers and get Bruno Fernando. Uh, Festus Azili, that's a very good comp for Fernando. I think Fernando is more athletic and will be better than Azili was, but that big-bodied center off the bench who can be a big defensive presence... That's a valuable type of player, and they now have that player at a very cheap rate for the next three years and moving forward in Bruno Fernando, trading two future seconds to get back in there at 34. Long-term, in that big-bodied backup center role, short-term, a super cheap young player. I thought Fernando was someone who had first-round talent and ability, 
So I love the move to get in there at 34 to get him. Let's move off of the draft now, and let's look at the rest of the moves that Atlanta made. First off, um, Solomon Hill and Miles Plumley into Chandler Parsons. Look, you're taking two bad contracts that are expiring. You're trading them for one bad contract that's an expiring. You save a little bit of money in the aggregate, and you open up a roster spot. Can't complain there. This one is interesting to me. Kent Bazemore for Evan Turner. You look at their roster now, Evan Turner is the backup point guard for this team now. You know, you look at Evan Turner uh, when he played with Portland. He's a guy who functioned a lot with the ball in his hands. Uh, he's not a guy who can shoot. He's not a guy who can be um, a scorer for you. His best skill really is being able to handle the ball for your second unit. And you look at Kent Bazemore. Of course, Kent Bazemore is a guy who he shoots threes and he plays defense and he fits the style of play that Atlanta plays. But you have added DeAndre Hunter. You've added Cam Reddish. Um, moving Bazemore, taking in Evan Turner, using Evan Turner in your backup point guard role, you take away the potential clutter that could exist as far as your perimeter wings to play. You have Herter, Hunter, and Reddish. Bazemore does not get in the way there as far as um, making it an issue as far as minutes are concerned. But getting Evan Turner gets you a backup point guard, takes away a potential clog towards your wing minutes. I'm fine with it. The money's basically a wash. They're both expirings. I have no issue with this move. Omari Spellman. Now, when Atlanta drafted Omari Spellman last year, 30th overall, I that was not a selection I was crazy about. I looked at Spellman and said that this guy is a one-dimensional player, and he's never going to be more than a decent bench contributor and you were just basically taking a guy who again this team kind of went all in last draft before this year it was all in on offense right and you drafted Trey Young you drafted Kevin Herter and then you pick Spellman at 30 to me Spellman was never going to be someone who could defend at an NBA level he was always going to be a defensive liability so with that you have to hope that, okay, this guy can be kind of a big man who can consistently score off of the bench. And in his rookie year, straight up, Omari Spellman was bad. He was not good. Had issues with staying in shape, was not very productive. And one year after drafting him 30th overall, Atlanta traded him to Golden State for their 2026 second and Damian Jones. Um, look, when you look at this trade... Does it stink to give up the 30th overall pick in the draft one year later for a second round pick that is seven years away? Yeah, of course it does. But again, Spellman was not good and he didn't really, to me, show much promise to be that off the bench consistent scorer to compensate for the fact that he was completely a one-way player. So I think this also shows the importance of when you're a rebuilding team you get this high volume of draft capital, give yourself as many swings as possible because you're going to miss. You're going to take swings and misses in the draft. So you get yourself as many swings as possible, as many picks as possible, so you get as many chances to hit in the draft as you possibly can. As far as Damian Jones, look, Travis Schlenk was in Golden State's front office when they picked him in the first round, but Damian Jones is bad. Uh, He's an expiring contract. The second rounder in 2026 could potentially be something. 
But the second round pick here is really the get. From Golden State standpoint, it gave them some more wiggle room uh, between the hard cap. But really here is just getting something for Omari Spellman before it was too late because quite simply, he was just not good and did not seem to be the player that they envisioned him as when they picked him at 30 last year. The Torian Prince trade to Brooklyn for Alan Crabb, pick 17 in this draft, which they used in the Hunter trade-up, and Brooklyn's 2020 first-round pick. So, coming into this year and um, last offseason, I never thought that Torian Prince was going to be a long-term piece for this Atlanta Hawks team because he's in the last year of his contract right now. And my thinking all along, I, I remember I did a um, a bit last year where I thought that Torian Prince was more or less, from the Hawks' perspective, in a make-or-break year because unless Torian Prince played at a level above what he was playing at before, played at an insanely productive level, I thought for sure that Atlanta was going to move off of him because I struggled to see a way in which Atlanta would have been willing to take away their future cap flexibility um, in order to sign Torian Prince. I never thought he was someone who was going to be in their long-term plans. I never thought that they would use up their cap resources on Torian Prince in whatever form that contract would have taken, the amount of money it would have cost per year. I never thought that they would take away their flexibility with the cap to take on bad money for assets, to make moves, to sign other players. Torian Prince was not going to get in the way of that unless he had a wow season. And he didn't. He had a solid season, but he did not wow you more than the level that he'd been playing at before. And as a result, they got themselves an opportunity here with Brooklyn needing to open up the second max spot. They got Alan Crabb back, who's in the last year, of that monster $18 million a year deal. Um, they got a pick that helped them get up for Hunter, and now they have themselves an extra first in this year's draft. And as far as Crab is concerned, he can shoot threes. This team shoots a ton of threes. Not a major role on this team, potentially, but he'll definitely have some sort of role on this team. He's a guy who can come off the bench and shoot for them, and they love to shoot threes, as I mentioned, so there is going to be some sort of role I believe, for Alan Crabb on this team. Even further with this trade, I think also getting that Brooklyn pick for this year, which should be around, you know, somewhere between, uh, probably around the um, lower 20s area of the first round of the draft, you know, somewhere around uh, 19 to 23, 24 or so. Getting that pick in this deal with Prince and Crab, that helps a lot because now Atlanta's going to be losing out on a future first coming in from Oklahoma City in 2022 with Oklahoma City now getting worse and going for that long-term process with draft picks. That is a team to me very unlikely to be a playoff team in 2022. That would make that pick convey as two seconds. So, you're losing out on what will be a first-round pick in 2022. So getting Brooklyn's first-round pick in 2020, you can kind of compensate for losing that first-round pick in the future, have it come in now so you have an incoming first. It's the same amount as if this trade would not have been made and Oklahoma City would have made the playoffs in 2022. Taking on Solomon Hill's contract, that was a component of 
the draft night trade to get up for DeAndre Hunter, they took Solomon Hill off of New Orleans' hands. Solomon Hill making over $12 million this year. Solomon Hill taking in that contract, they ultimately ended up mentioning, as I mentioned, moving it along with Plumlee to Memphis for Parsons. But taking back that Hill contract, that disallowed them the ability to add more bad money this offseason with an asset attached to it. Uh, so that's another reason to me to not be super crazy about the Hunter trade-up because you look at it now, they're in the $6 million range as far as their cap space remaining. Um, you don't make that trade and you don't take back Solomon Hill, then you don't do the Hill and Plumlee trade for Parsons. That's $12 million in space extra this team could have had. And who knows? Maybe there was an avenue for them to add um, bad money uh, that's an expiring contract for this year and maybe get an asset attached to it. Who knows if that opportunity was there, but without taking back Hill's contract, that opportunity to have cap space when very few teams have cap space at this point, that could have been valuable for them to get another asset um, in. Now we talk about Jabari Parker. They went out and signed Jabari Parker two years, $6.5 a year. The second year is a player option. And look, I am not a believer in Jabari Parker whatsoever. To me, Jabari Parker is not worth more than a minimum contract. And I don't get this contract at all. The per-year figure is too high. The player option in the second year is really excessive. And giving Jabari Parker a two-year contract is also something that I don't think makes a lot of sense. To think of it from their perspective, I guess they envision Parker as someone who can be a creator of their own shot and a creator of offense for the second unit. I'm just totally out on Parker at this point, so that perhaps could have been their rationale. You know, Atlanta likes to go out in free agency and make these deals, these two-year deals with lower-level veteran players. You know, they did it with Dwayne Dedman. Deadman ended up playing great for them, got himself a three-year deal with Sacramento for above the mid-level exception. They signed Alex Len last offseason for two years at about four and a half a year. He played well for them. He's in the second year of that deal this year. And now Jabari Parker, two years, six and a half million. Deadman and Len, fine. Those were fine deals. This Parker one to me, I don't like at all. So we look at Atlanta's offseason as a whole. They are still set up to be a truly great team once it all comes together in two years from now, as I've stated before. They took a hit in terms of the amount of assets at their disposal, their draft capital ammunition on hand. They cashed in a lot of those assets for a very good fit player uh, who is skilled in areas they needed that skill, albeit one who doesn't have a ton of upside. Uh, Not the best asset management and use of the cap, but not a terrible or bad use of it. Somewhere in the middle, just kind of eh. The core of the team stayed intact. They, to me, I see them as the 10 seed in the East this year. They had a very solid offseason that could have been better, um, but it also could have been worse, and it doesn't change or restrict their path to being a very good team in two years. They still have a ton of salary cap space next year that... And in 2021, which is really important with that summer being a huge free agent summer, so this summer did not get in the way of that monster cap space at their disposal in that coming season. 
Looking at them specifically for this year, their over-under for wins is 33 and a half. Uh, they won 29 games last year. I'll take the over slightly on that, uh, but it, it'll be close as far as that over-under is concerned. I could see them pulling it out to 34 wins, so I will take the over on that 33.5 win total over-under for the Hawks. Let's move it along now, and let's go to the Boston Celtics. And the Boston Celtics, the main thing that stood out to me with their offseason was their maneuvering at the draft. I thought they did such an impressive job. Romeo Langford, they added at 14. They took advantage of the Sixers you know, being infatuated with Matisse Thybul and picked him at 20 and traded him to the Sixers for pick 24 and 33, took Grant Williams at 22, and then took pick 24 and attached Aaron Baines to it and sent that out to Phoenix for Milwaukee's 2021st, and then drafted Carson Edwards at 33. So, looking at all of those moves together, what did they accomplish? A lot. They shed the needed salary to get to the point where announcing Terry Rozier gave them the ability to sign Kemba Walker, and in doing so, they got back a pick for this 2020 draft. So as far as the specific number of firsts coming to them, it's not a net loss. It's the same exact amount because they got a first to come in. They shed Aaron Baines' money. They shed the money that would have been paid to the 24th overall pick. And they're going to get a pick from Milwaukee this year, lower than 24, but still a first-round pick nonetheless. And they came out of this draft to me with uh, two really good prospects and one who has big upside albeit with a lot of question marks and reasons to not be crazy about them. That one is Romeo Langford, who they picked at 14. To me, I look at him, he's a bit of a chucker, and he's not a consistent three-point shooter, not an efficient player, kind of a a very, very ball-dominant player. So there is major upside in Langford as this high-volume offensive scoring machine, but that three-point shot needs to be better and more consistent. He needs to become a more efficient player. I'm not crazy about him. Personally, if they had picked Nikhil Alexander-Walker at 14, I thought that would have been a much better pick. And in my mind, that would have given them the best draft out of anyone in this past draft. But the potential is there in Romeo Langford. I get their rationale. I'm just not crazy about him. Grant Williams at 22. He's a heady player. He's smart. Plays hard. High basketball IQ. A great player to have on your team. With a three-point shot to me... He's a better version of P.J. Tucker or Boris Diaw. Awesome pick, and he's just a guy who you get the sense that he's going to be a productive NBA player. Carson Edwards at 33, one of my favorite picks of the entire draft. The ready-made role of an offensive, uh, offensive spark plug off the bench who they're paying so little due to him being picked in the second round. There's a defined long-term role for Edwards in the NBA as that offensive spark plug off the bench, and I know a lot of people want to say, oh, he's too small, defensively he's going to be a liability, but you look at his frame, you look at the base that he has in his strong legs, I think he'll be able to compensate for his size by the fact that he is built so strongly um, and should be able to have the strength, especially in his base, to overcome bigger players while he he, he is on defense. So, as a whole... Excellent draft, great maneuvering, 
keep the first round pick for next year, add some really good prospects, incredible draft maneuvering by the Celtics. Now we get into Kemba Walker, and the gap between Walker and Kyrie, it's, of course, Kyrie's better, but it's not a huge gap. And in Walker, you're getting someone without issue, whereas Kyrie Irving, obviously, there were significant issues with he and the Celtics last season. So being able to pivot and get Walker in the midst of the worst possible scenario for their offseason with Kyrie leaving and Horford leaving, that was a fantastic pivot for them. I think, though, there's no way that they're going to be able to sufficiently replace Al Horford, and I really am concerned about their center position. I would have preferred them, to me, with the room exception, I think getting someone who is more defensive-minded, like an Ed Davis, would have been a better move than using that room exception on Ennis Cantor. You know, you're going to get the offense and the insane rebounding from Cantor, but there's very little defensive presence at that center spot for this team at all. You have Ennis Cantor, you have Daniel Tice, you have Robert Williams, you signed Vincent Poirier, may have butchered the name there. That's your group of centers there, and I can't see how that group is going to be able to match up and effectively combat, you know, centers like Joel Embiid or Brooke Lopez or Nick Vucevic or Marc Gasol in the Eastern Conference, and I think that's going to hurt the Celtics' overall defensive ability as a whole. Now, you have Robert Williams in there, uh, their former first-round pick from 2018. Him uh, sort of taking a jump and progressing in his level of play, that would be really, really impactful for them because he fits that profile of being an athletic, rim-protecting center who can rebound and be very athletic. Um, so if he can take that jump, that would really benefit them because he would be the one center on this team who could provide that semblance of being a rim protector. But regardless, as I said, they are not replacing Al Horford's production, and that is going to be a significant loss for this team. Very interested to see how Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, Brown now in the last year before becoming a restricted free agent, how they do this year. For Tatum, it's a crucial year. If he plays the same way he did last year, taking bad shots, not being an efficient um, offensive scoring option, not playing as he did in the playoffs in 2018, then there's cause for concern because that's probably what he is long-term as a player. And then for Jalen Brown, what do you value him at? If you're the Celtics, do you try to get an extension done before the deadline to do so? Do you wait until after the season? I think there's a lot of questions there. Personally, I think both are in line for big years. I think Tatum is the player that we saw in the playoffs in 2018. I think Brown is definitely going to bounce back from the season he had last year. One player who I look at on this team, and there's a lot of people who've been saying that this guy has the chance to bounce back and get back to his previous form, Gordon Hayward. Look, I think Gordon Hayward is what he is at this point. I don't look at Gordon Hayward and see someone who can get back to the form that he played with um, with Utah in that last year before the Celtics signed him. I think at this point, what we've seen from Gordon Hayward, that's just who Gordon Hayward is at this point moving forward. Now, we look at the Celtics team, and I think, obviously, the best-case scenario for this team is being the three-seed in the East. They're in the mix with Brooklyn, Indiana, and Toronto for being that three-to-six range 
And long term, I think they're kind of solidified as being in that range in the Eastern Conference, dependent on what they can get out of the Memphis Grizzlies pick that's coming their way. Top six protected in 2020, unprotected 2021. So that's really the only coming avenue for them to add another impact player, whether that's using it in a trade, whether that's selecting that impact player. They need to really hit on whatever they use that pick as, as far as if it's it's selecting a player this year or next year when it conveys, or using it in a trade, because this team needs one more significant piece to get back to being a truly contending team. Because to me, they're a very solid, nice playoff team, but they're a second-round playoff team at this point. And I don't see contending upside for this team unless Tatum gets back to his 2018 form and becomes what so many people visualize him as, as this all-star level number one offensive option, or unless they add a major contributor with this Memphis pick. As far as this year, they won 49 games last year. Their over-under is 49 and a half wins. I'm going to take the under on that, not by a lot, but I don't see this team winning 49 games. Maybe something like 47 wins around that area I think is realistic for the Celtics for this season. Moving along now, let's go to the Brooklyn Nets. And so with Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving added to this team, when Kevin Durant is healthy and when he's back on the court in 2020-2021, I expect the Brooklyn Nets to be the best team in the Eastern Conference. I'm incredibly high on the Nets for the long term. They're a true championship contender with those two on this team. And for this year, even without Durant, I am still very high on the Nets for this year. So looking at their offseason, first off, it's the cap maneuvering to get Irving and Durant and DeAndre Jordan in. They essentially created $10 million out of thin air with how they uh, structured their moves, with how they carried out the sign-and-trade. It was really incredible work by this Nets organization. And the most impactful part of being able to carry out such great maneuvering with the cap there was they got to keep all of their pieces to be the super deep team. They kept guys like Zan and Musa, who seemed like he was going to maybe potentially have to be the cap casualty and they'd have to trade him elsewhere. But they were able to keep all of their depth. They were able to keep all of their contributors from last season and they didn't have to shed anyone to create that cap space to take in those three players. And that allowed them to take advantage this maneuvering that they did with the cap to get in Irving, Jordan, and Durant. That maneuvering allowed them to take advantage of Russell heading out, now have a chance to have an additional first in addition to the Philadelphia first via Golden State for this year, if not a future second, got Kevin Durant more money. So incredible maneuvering there to get all three of those guys in to have that work out. I think one thing too that kind of uh, flies under the radar um, with getting Irving, Durant, DeAndre Jordan in there is how they structured DeAndre Jordan's contract. So personally, I'm not the biggest fan of DeAndre Jordan at this point. Jared Allen should be starting over him. He's better at this point. He's younger. He still has room to grow. I think DeAndre Jordan's best days are behind him and is best suited as 
a very good bench big, but they structured Jordan's contract in a very smart way. He's making 9.8 mil in the first year, 10.3 in the second, 9.8 in the third, and 9.8 in the fourth year. So you're not having his contract be continuously escalating, making him more or less and less tradable as the contract goes on. Perhaps, you know, he can remain tradable if the need to do so arises. But I think it's smart that they had the highest per year figure in year two and otherwise kept the per year figure relatively the same. Uh, Karis Levert. Karis Levert, to me, has a very good chance of taking that jump, obviously to a lesser extent, but taking that jump similar to what Pascal Siakam did last year and becoming an all-star. I think it's very, very possible that Karis Levert makes the all-star team this season. Rest of their off-season maneuverings, Garrett Temple at the room exception, I think that was a fantastic add to add a veteran 3 and D wing. In the draft, Nick Claxton at 31. Claxton, great size, great length, super athletic, and there's really big upside for him on both sides of the ball as a rim-protecting athletic center, um, someone with a lot of uh, ability to grow offensively. You know, he has the chance to become a go-to stretch big who can protect the rim, who can be super athletic, who can guard smaller players on defense. And to get that at 31, that is an incredible move by the Brooklyn Nets. But then again, should we really be surprised considering how well the Nets have hit on picks in the 20s and in the second round um, during Sean Marks' tenure? David Nwaba, a very late free agent ad by the Nets, the quintessential free agent signing by the Brooklyn Nets, just making a smart, under-the-radar signing. Torian Prince, who I just talked about in the Atlanta portion of this podcast, I think he could very well end up starting for this team with Durant out this season. They can now re-sign him for the long term. He's a good player. That's a very solid player to have on your team for the long term and to continue to build out the very significant amount of depth that this team has. Um... In the draft, swapping out pick 27 to the Clippers, getting back the Sixers 2021st, they saved money by not having to pay their 27th pick, take away space in the maneuvering to get Irving, Durant, and DeAndre Jordan. They now have an asset in the first round this year because, as mentioned, that Brooklyn first is going to Atlanta this year. So they have that Sixers first, maybe that Golden State first also. And you now look at this team, you have Kyrie Irving, Spencer Dinwiddie, Joe Harris, Garrett Temple, David Nwaba, Karis LeVert, Torian Prince, uh, Rodeoks Kurix, Wilson Chandler, Jarrett Allen, DeAndre Jordan, and then you have Nick Claxton and Zanin Musa as very interesting young players. And Kevin Durant coming back next year. Overall, I really like this team this year, even without Durant. I see him as the four seed in the East. Their over-under for the year is 44.5 wins. They won 42 games last year. I'm going to take the over on that 44.5 win total. Not by a crazy amount. I don't think they're winning 50 games by any means. But around the 46, 47 wins, I think they're definitely in that range. Um, along with Boston, Indiana, and Toronto. In that 3-6 to six range, I think it's going to be very tight. I think Boss or Brooklyn probably slots in there as about the four seed in the East. Next, we go to the Charlotte Hornets. And 
very early at this point, but at this point, they are my early pick to be the worst team in the NBA for this coming season. As far as the Kemba Walker um, departure is concerned, if you don't value Kemba Walker at the contract that they were going to have to that they were going to have to give him, how can you not trade him at this trade deadline last year in the offseason or last year's trade deadline? Multiple chances to trade Walker to get something back for him. You knew, you knew that this type of contract was coming his way. And to not want to sign him for it and let him walk for nothing is foolish. And whatever the reason was, whether it was to chase an eight seed, whether it was because the All-Star game was in Charlotte, they really made a foolish move in keeping Walker and not getting just something for him because he had significant value at this trade deadline last offseason and last trade deadline. To let him walk for nothing when this team was really stuck in the middle and going nowhere anyway, very much a bad move by the Charlotte Hornets. Looking at their offseason, we got to start with this Terry Rozier sign and trade. So since they got the... Um, newly signing player in the sign-in trade, Charlotte became hard-capped and did so. They they hard-capped themselves to take in via sign-in trade a fringe starter at $19 million a year for three years, even though it's in descending per-year figures, you know, 19.8 this year, 18.9 next year, 17.9 in year three. To me, that's a significant overpay and is immediately one of the worst contracts in the NBA. And that is on top of what is very likely the worst cap sheet in the NBA, where you have Bismack Biombo expiring this year at 17 mil, Marvin Williams expiring this year at 15 mil, Michael K. Gilchrist, 13 mil expiring this year, Cody Zeller uh, making 14.4 this year and 15.4 mil next year. Nick Batum making 25.5 mil this year, and then when he opts in for next year, 27.1 mil. Add Terry Rozier on top of that, that's the worst cap sheet in the NBA. They're a hard-capped team with a ton of bad contracts. You know, there's a saving grace in the fact that a lot of those figures were expiring besides Zeller and Batum. So with that in mind, I thought a good approach would be, you know, you're, you get off of those three, Biombo, Williams, and MKG this year. You get off of Batum and Zeller next year, and then it's a clean slate. An absolute clean slate. But instead, they signed Rozier to a significant overpay in my mind, and that was simply not the correct course of action. You look at the young players on this team. P.J. Washington, they select in the draft this year. He'll be a solid pro. Do I see major potential or upside to Washington? I don't. Will he be solid? Yes. Anything special? Probably not. Malik Monk, I was never high on. Still am not, and I don't see him being a long-term piece for this team. Um, And frankly, he's a bench player and is not a starter in the NBA. Miles Bridges, I'm down on in comparison to where I was on him this time last year, but I still think he will be solid and has the highest ceiling of any young player on this Hornets team. Um, Even though, again, as I mentioned, I am down on him in comparison to last year, I still think he is a solid prospect. 
And so you look at this team now. Let's just go through position by position what this team has for this season. Your point guard spot. You have Terry Rozier and Devontae Graham, a second-round pick from 2018. Nick Batum, Malik Monk, Dwayne Bacon at the two. Um, Miles Bridges and MKG. P.J. Washington and Marvin Williams. Cody Zeller, Bismack Biombo, um, and Willie Hernan Gomez. To me, right now, as I said, I think that's the worst team in the NBA at this point. And even if they're not the worst team in the NBA, they're in the bottom three. And they're a bottom three team that's hard-capped, that has the worst cap sheet in the NBA, and does not have a significant building block for the future. And for me, their over-under for the year is 23.5. Again, this is very early at this point with the odds just coming out. But I'm going to take the slight under and give them 21 wins at this point in time. You look at the burden that Kemba Walker had offensively with this team. Take Kemba Walker off of this team. Throw in Terry Rozier in that spot with this team. I just mentioned their rotation, their options at 1 through 5. This is going to be a bad team this year. And their offseason was very bad. They got nothing for Kemba Walker. Didn't move him when they should have in the past. Made a bad move in signing Terry Rozier. This team is the worst team in the NBA at this point in my mind. And they come off of it with a very bad offseason where they are hard-capped. How can you be hard-capped and be this bad of a team with the worst cap sheet in the league? Incredible. Let's move it along from Charlotte, and let's go to the Chicago Bulls, who had a very solid offseason. I like a lot of the pieces they have on this team. To me, it's just a matter of how does it come together cohesively, putting all these pieces together. One of the best signings of the entire offseason to me, Thomas Sadoransky, three years, $30 million, with the third year partially guaranteed. Only required some second-round shuffling and maneuvering with Washington since Sadoransky was a restricted free agent. Frankly, I thought Washington should have re-signed Sadoransky. He's a big guard, six foot seven, can handle the ball, he can shoot, he can pass, he can defend. Every team in the league could use Thomas Sadoransky. I love this move for Chicago. Kobe White, they selected seventh overall. I'm not super high on Kobe White. But I still acknowledge that he's going to be, I believe, a decent um, to solid starting point guard in the NBA. Daniel Gafford at 38. That was one of my favorite picks of the whole draft. They were able to sign him to a hinky special. So they got him on four years. The third year, non-guaranteed. The fourth year, both a team option and non-guaranteed. He balled out in summer league. And he's a guy, he's a rim protector. He moves well, uh, plays hard with a high motor. Finishes at the rim, high-quality rebounder, the perfect backup center. And they got him on the hinky special at pick 38 in the second round. Thaddeus Young, three years, $41 million, third year, partially guaranteed at $6 million. Look, every team in the league could use Thaddeus Young. A tweener forward who can shoot, can play defense, can provide um, a solid veteran presence. You can really have some interesting five-man groups with Young on the floor. Fantastic signing. Luke Cornett, two years, five mil to be a depth big who can be a stretch big for you. Excellent signing right there. A cause for concern, though, this is something I noticed in Summer League, was Chandler Hutchinson. Their first round pick, or their second first round pick in 2018, 
They picked uh, Wendell Carter Jr. Then they picked Chandler Hutchinson. Hutchinson, he's a second-year pro, and he was a first-round pick, and he's playing in summer league. In theory, a player like that should be the best player on the court, if not that, then the second-best player on the court in summer league. He should stand out and clearly be among the best players, if not the best player, in whatever game he's playing in. And to me, he kind of faded into the background. He didn't stand out at all. His shooting was not great, really wasn't productive, and he really didn't show much of anything. And I think that should be a cause for concern for the Bulls because to have a second-round pick be such a non-factor in summer league, that's got to be very concerning. So you look at this team now. Sadoransky, Kobe White, re-signed Ryan Archidiakono, Chris Dunn is still on this team, um, Zach Levine, Chandler Hutchinson, they brought back Shaq Harrison on a non-guaranteed one-year deal, Otto Porter, Denzel Valentine, Lori Markkinen, Thaddeus Young, Wendell Carter Jr., Daniel Gafford, Luke Cornett, Cristiano Felicio's contract. So we look at this, and we look at this Chicago Bulls team this team is very, very deep, has a nice mix of young players, veterans, um, but I don't know how it all works together, and I feel like before I set expectations high or low, I'd like to see them on the court together. I still think, though, that the Bulls are missing the true uh, future superstar of this team. Lori Markkinen is obviously the best prospect on this team. Lori Markkinen... Wendell Carter Jr. and Zach Levine are the three building, and now Kobe White, are the four building blocks of this team. And to me, Laurie Markkinen is going to be a very good player. But I do not see Laurie Markkinen ever being the best player on a contending team. And as a result, I think that may kind of end up maxing them out as a mid-tier playoff team rather than a top-tier playoff team when it all comes together and they are eventually a playoff team. I think they're probably the 11th seed in the East. I think Atlanta is better than them. Uh, They won 22 games last year. Their over-under is 33.5 for this year. At this point in time, I'll take the under uh, slightly, maybe 32 wins or so. They're improved from next year, or last year, no question. I just don't know how this team comes together and works with all of these pieces. I'm very interested to see how that goes this season. But as a whole, they had a very solid offseason, a solid draft, made good signings of veterans like Thaddeus Young, like Thomas Sadoransky. Very solid offseason for the Chicago Bulls. Moving along now, we go to the Cleveland Cavaliers. The Cavs, there's not a ton to get into with the Cavs. On my draft review podcast, I got really into the nitty-gritty of their draft why I liked the fact that they went for talent rather than a positional fit or archetype because their team does not have a defined um, set of long-term building blocks or foundational players yet. So I really liked their draft, taking the best player at every spot in Darius Garland, Dylan Windler, trading to pick 30 to get Kevin Porter Jr. I went in-depth on that in my draft review podcast. You can go back and listen to that. But more or less the gist of it was They don't have anyone on their team who's a defined long-term building block yet. They don't know what their long-term team, once they start to build to contending, is going to be. So they selected the best talent. They're going to figure it out later, and that was the right move to make. Uh, 
Unfortunately, they couldn't take advantage of that J.R. Smith contract. Would have been a nice little loophole to take advantage of to add another asset, but they're too close to the tax at this point to really have made it worthwhile for them to take on big money to go into the tax, even with an asset attached to it, unless that asset uh, was really a nice, significant asset. I don't think there was a team out there willing to make such a deal. Um, so, unfortunately, they couldn't take advantage of that, um, what I thought was a pretty significant asset in J.R. Smith's contract. I really think they need to start gauging the market for Kevin Love. Perhaps doing so this offseason before the season started would have been smart. I Portland makes a ton of sense. Um, so, I, I expect them, and hopefully they should, to get into discussing Kevin Love trades um, as the season progresses closer to the trade deadline. Long term, though, they made a great hire and head coach with John Bayline. They had a good draft, taking in the best talent they could and then figuring it out later as far as Garland and Sexton and Kevin Porter, see how all those pieces fit together. If I'm them, I think it would be smart to take your big expirings and Tristan Thompson, Jordan Clarkson, John Henson, Della Vadova, and Brandon Knight, and see if you can turn them into deals that have one extra year on them that you can have an asset attached to to get another asset in. Perhaps that's doable, perhaps it's not, but I would look into it. But as a whole, really the only thing I can sort of dig into with their offseason was they made a good coaching hire. I thought they had a good draft. They amassed a lot of talent, didn't subscribe to a positional need or fit that wasn't there yet. So solid draft, good head coaching hire. And in that respect, a solid offseason for the Cleveland Cavaliers. They're still going to be one of the... I think Charlotte and Washington will be... I think Charlotte will be worse than them. I think they'll be the second worst team in the Eastern Conference um, and one of the worst three teams in the NBA at season's end. You look at their draft capital in the coming years, based off of the their pick definitely going to be in the top 10 this year. This year and next year, as of this point, they'll just have their own firsts. 2022, they'll pick up with more draft ammo and capital. They'll have their own, their own first. They'll have Milwaukee's first. Um, they'll have Washington second, which could be valuable. Houston second. Uh, then 2023, their first and own second. And then they'll have um, multiple seconds in 2024. And then we'll have their first and owned second in 2025 and 2026. So going back to that idea of taking those expirings for contracts of one extra year with an asset attached, getting some second round draft capital, they expensed a lot of it, getting the 30th pick from Detroit for um, giving up four second round picks and $5 million in cash to get to pick 30 to Detroit to get Kevin Porter. Um they could use adding some second-round capital in this coming draft in 2020 or 2021. So maybe they can take one of those aforementioned guys like Thompson, Henson, Delavadova, Knight, or Clarkson, turn them into a contract with one extra year, and get a second-round pick or two attached to it. But as a whole, a good offseason for the Cavs, good head coaching hire, a good draft, um, and I'm very interested to see how Kobe Altman shapes this Cleveland Cavaliers team moving forward. Next, we look at the Detroit Pistons, who, quite frankly, are stuck in the middle. 
know, your quintessential team that is an eight seed who could get swept or win a game in the first round or be the nine seed. Blake Griffin coming off of an incredible season last year, All-NBA third team. Looking at their offseason, first off, looking at the draft, they did a very good job. Saku Dumbaya, who they took 15th overall, went lower than most people thought he would. Big body tweener forward who has a ton of upside, is very, very raw. But you look at him, he's a guy with great size, great length, great athleticism, and there's really room for so much growth with him. And, of course, long-term project, very raw, but the upside for Dombaya is significant, and getting him at pick 15 was a significant win for Detroit. So, an excellent pick there. Making that trade with Milwaukee, where they took on Tony Snell from Milwaukee and got the 30th pick in the draft to do so, sent out John Lawyer, who Milwaukee then waved and stretched to stay under the tax, make all their moves that they did. Tony Snell, yes, he is overpaid. Snell is at 11 mil, or just over 11 mil for this year, has a player option for next year at just over 12 mil. So yeah, he's overpaid as I just said, But he's a guy who I think will play some minutes for this Detroit team. He can still shoot. He's not a terrible player. He's a decent player, just on a bloated contract. And to get that 30th pick, which they then made the deal with Cleveland for trading out Porter and getting back the four seconds and five million in cash. I said this before my draft podcast, but Detroit was kind of devoid of second round capital moving forward. Um, And they added four second-round picks to move off of 30. So, in effect, they took John Lawyer. They turned him into Tony Snell, who can play some minutes for them, and four second-round picks to restock the ammunition and depth of their draft capital in the second round. So, as a whole, very solid maneuvering um, with the pick for Dombaya and um, in that move at 30 to get the four second-round picks taking on Tony Snell to do that. Um, Looking at the rest of their offseason and the signings that they made, Derek Rose at two years for $15 million. When Rose was healthy last year, he had the best season of his career in recent memory. He was, at a point, he was definitely a very high candidate in the sixth man of the year race. Uh, he, He had a great season. And now... Coming to Detroit at two years at 15 mil, I think that's a reasonable rate for him. He's not going to be healthy to play um, a ton of games, but getting him at $7.5 million a year, if he can play at the level he did last year as a sixth man, great move and great addition by Detroit there. Um, Markeith Morris, who um, they signed making 3.2 this year, has a player option at 3.3 next year. Um That's a fine signing. That figure is lower than it would have had he been healthy last year. Again, for depth purposes, for what it cost, I like Morris as a player. If he's healthy, that was a good signing. They ended up getting Christian Wood, who has bounced around from team to team, but there is some upside and ability there with Christian Wood. Tim Frazier, as an end-of-the-bench depth guard, was a solid add. You look at this team, this Detroit Pistons team, Again, they're stuck in the middle, but they made some solid moves around the margins this offseason with getting that second-round draft capital, taking in Tony Snell, who could be decent for them, 
um, in minutes here and there. Getting Derrick Rose as an offensive scorer, Markeith Morris at a low rate. If he's healthy, he'll outperform that number. You still have Bruce Brown picked in the second round in 2018, who had a good rookie season. I like Kyrie Thomas a lot. They turned Reggie Bullock into Svee, who I like a lot. So they've got some nice young pieces. They've got Blake Griffin, who had an incredible year last year. They'll finally be off of Reggie Jackson's monster contract after this season. They'll be off of Langston Galloway's $7.3 million after this season. This team, again, stuck in the middle, but they made some solid moves this offseason. They had a good draft, getting into Mbaya, making that move at pick 30, um, ending up with Jordan Bone and then signing Lewis King as their two-way players. Again, both those guys are solid in that spot. Derrick Rose, a good signing. Marquise Morris, a good signing. So, a nice offseason for the Pistons. Will it be a needle mover and make them significantly better than last year? Absolutely not. But did they do a good job with the moves they made and made some nice additions? Yes. They did the best with their current situation that they could. A solid offseason for the Pistons. Um, we're looking at their over-under as far as win total is concerned for next year. They won 41 games last year. Their over-under is 37 and a half. I'm going to take the over on that. I think between 38 and 42 wins I think is pretty doable for them. Again, a 9 seed or an 8 seed that bows out in the first round is really what this team is locked into at this point. But with the situation and circumstances that they had, I think they had a very solid offseason. One more thing, though, with the Pistons to consider, though, Andre Drummond right now, at 27 mil for this year, has a player option for next year at 28 and a half. I'm interested to see if there is an avenue for the Pistons to potentially move Drummond to see what the market is for him. I would not be stunned to see Drummond decline that player option and to go into free agency after the coming season. I don't particularly like Drummond and Griffin together. Um, there is an avenue... If Drummond is moved by the Pistons, if he walks after this year, that they could potentially have some cap space to make some noise in a weak free agent class next year. But that's just something to look out for with the Pistons as far as Andre Drummond is concerned. Whether they try to move off of him, whether there's a decent market for him, and whether he exercises or declines that player option after the coming season. The next team I wanted to get into here is the Indiana Pacers. And the Indiana Pacers are a team who a lot of people have really, really positively spoken about and praised their offseason. To me, let, let's just go through it transaction by transaction first. So, um, Malcolm Brogdon, in at four years, $85 million, traded a first and two future seconds to get him, signed Jeremy Lamb, three years, $30 million, Added Justin Holiday on the room exception. Really, really liked that addition. Deep into free agent or later on in free agency, Holiday's the quintessential three and D wing. Going back to Jeremy Lamb, Jeremy Lamb had a very good season last year, and Malcolm Brogdon. We've seen him over these couple of years. Former Rookie of the Year, even though it should have been Joel Embiid, um, was Milwaukee's second best player in the playoffs at times last year. T.J. McConnell. Speaking of the Sixers, two years, seven million, year two, non-guaranteed. 
Every team in the league could use a guy like TJ McConnell. Great guy to have on the end of your bench. Provides energy and a spark if needed. A great guy to have in your locker room. Signed Jakar Sampson. Shout out to the Process Sixers right there. Very late in free agency. And made a really sneaky, um, interesting ad adding Brian Bowen on a two-way contract. We look at their draft. Goga Batadze, their first-round draft selection. I was, and if you listen to my draft um, podcasts, I really like Goga Batadze. I look at him as offensively is everything you want the modern NBA big to be. He can score in the post. He can shoot threes. I think he has more defensive upside than someone, you know, I think everyone likes to compare him to Ennis Cantor. Um, I think he's a better offensive version and someone with defensive upside version of Ennis Cantor. Goga can protect the rim, and I think that there is room for him to become a better defender. Um, but as a whole, offensively, you're getting the interior game in the post, you're getting three-point shooting, and defensively, you're getting rim protection. And I think he's a starter as a big in this league moving forward. And I thought he was excellent value for the Pacers picking at 18. They somehow, because Phoenix felt the need to clear cap and then almost end up using all of it throughout the duration of the draft, they were able to take in TJ Warren and pick 32 for nothing. Warren is a good player. Yeah, he makes a decent amount of money making... Uh, 10.8 million this year, 11.75 next year, and 12.69 in 21-22. But Warren is a good player, and they got pick 32 with him. Had to give up nothing, and then turned pick 32 into future second round picks um, from Miami for Miami to get up there and pick Akpala. So between Batadze and between getting Warren and pick 32 for nothing, Indiana had an excellent draft night. Um, you look at this team overall now as the product of this draft and their offseason moves. This team is deep. Position by position, you now have Malcolm Brogdon, Aaron Holiday, their first-round pick um, in 2018, now has the ability to assume a greater role. Last year, Darren Collison was the starter. Corey Joseph was the backup. Aaron Holiday now is the backup point guard to Malcolm Brogdon here. And Malcolm Brogdon, who has have who has had um, health concerns in the past, Aaron Holiday's number two in line there with TJ McConnell behind Aaron Holiday. So they've given Holiday their first round pick from 2018 the ability to assume a greater role than the aforementioned TJ McConnell behind those two. When he comes back, you have Victor Oladipo and Justin Holiday. You have Jeremy Lamb and Doug McDermott. Demontis Sabonis, TJ Warren, Miles Turner, Goga Batadze, and that's without mentioning guys like Edmund Sumner, um, TJ Leaf, Jakar Sampson. So this team, just those players I mentioned, they're 11 deep as the year goes on when they're playing meaningful games. And depth is paramount, so they are a very deep team. But despite a great draft night, um... And some solid moves in adding Jeremy Lamb and um, Justin Holiday, the room exception, and TJ McConnell. I think that this team got slightly worse. And I know that that's a take that a lot of people would say the opposite of and would say that they got better. But, and this is something I've said on my Twitter, 
at Brad Clear underscore. Clear is spelled K-L-I-E-R. I think this team got slightly worse because I think three things. First off, I don't think it's a question we all know. Malcolm Brogdon is better than Darren Collison, the recently retired Darren Collison. So now, looking at that, that's an upgrade. From Collison to Brogdon, that's an upgrade. We mentioned, or I mentioned earlier, Brogdon has health concerns. There's the concern about his foot. But Brogdon is a very productive player, was Milwaukee's second best player at times in the playoffs last year. So that's an upgrade. But the next two things of these three things, to me, are the reason reasons why this team is slightly worse. First off, I think that the loss of Bogdanovich is being undersold. I think Bojan Bogdanovich, shout out to him for landing that massive four-year deal for 73 mil with Utah. Look, Jeremy Lamb had a very good season last year, but Jeremy Lamb is a clear downgrade from Bojan Bogdanovich. Bojan Bogdanovich, when it wasn't Victor Oladipo, the ball was in Bojan Bogdanovich's hands to create offense, to create shots for himself, and to get needed buckets. The number two option on this team, and a very good number two option at that last year, was Bojan Bogdanovic. And Jeremy Lamb is not the same quality of player that Bogdanovic is. And I think that that's something that's being undersold. I think that they're going to miss Bogdanovic more than people are estimating, especially for the period of time in which Victor Oladipo is still out. Because with Oladipo out, after that injury last January, their go-to scoring guy, the guy who created offense and was their top scorer, was Bojan Bogdanovic. And I don't think that the production and the level of play that Bogdanovic provided could have been done if Jeremy Lamb was in that role. I just think Bogdanovich is a better player than Jeremy Lamb by a decent margin. And I think that that's something that's not being recognized enough. Then moving off of that, Miles Turner and Demodis Sabonis. So when Batadze got drafted by Indiana at 18, my initial reaction was, okay, Turner and Sabonis playing at the same time together was never going to work. They've recognized it now. And they just paid Turner last offseason, so they're going to go ahead and trade Sabonis before they have to pay him, re-sign Thaddeus Young, because Turner and Sabonis doesn't work together, you can only play one, and therefore you can only pay one. And now they've added Batadze, so you don't need Sabonis as the second big behind Turner. But instead, Indiana seemingly is committed to playing Turner and Sabonis together. And I don't think that's going to work. Sabonis, after this year, is due his second contract. He played very, very well last year. I don't think they work together. I think in a perfect scenario, you have Miles Turner at the five with with someone like Thaddeus Young, who they had last year and let walk. Someone like that, he's young, a tweener, stretch four type, and Miles Turner at the five. I think that's the optimal um, front court combo for this team. 
I don't think Turner and Sabonis works together. Now they're really committing to it because they let Thaddeus Young walk. Yes, they did get TJ Warren back and have TJ Warren behind Sabonis at the four. But letting Thaddeus Young walk and committing to Sabonis and Turner together is risky because I don't think it works. I don't think it's as fluid and um, optimal of a combination as a stretch four type and Turner would have been. And now they're kind of locking themselves into having to pay Sabonis and therefore having Turner and Sabonis locked up on big money while playing them together. And I don't think that that works. So now you've lost Thaddeus Young. You have Turner and Sabonis together. So the duo of Sabonis and Turner together, the downgrade from Bogdanovich to Lamb, even with the upgrade from Collison to Brogdon, there's two losses there, or one loss and then one lineup pairing as a result of a loss in Thaddeus Young. I think those two negatives are pretty significant and are not focused on enough. And even though Brogdon will be better than Collison, because of the fact that they're losing Bogdanovich and going to Lamb, someone who's not as good at creating his own shot and not as good of an all-around offensive player, still very good, and playing essentially two fives in Turner and Sabonis together, I think that makes them slightly worse. Are they still a very good team, especially when Oladipo comes back? Yes. Are they a very deep team? As they were last year, yes. But Turner and Sabonis together and going from Bogdanovich to Lamb, I don't like either of those. And to me, that outweighs Brogdon coming in over Collison. A very interesting offseason for them. Um, They'll still, to me, they're definitely in that 3-6 to range in the Eastern Conference. It's just a matter of where they slot out. It's a matter of when Oladipo comes back. That will determine... You know, really where they slot in that three to six range. But it's very interesting to look at their offseason because I think they got slightly worse, even though a lot of people think that they improved. Very interesting maneuvering by Kevin Pritchard and the Pacers this offseason. Next, we go to the Miami Heat. And of course, we have to start with the addition of Jimmy Butler via sign and trade. So this sign and trade, you know, really got off the rails for a second, almost had a chance of. You know, kind of slipping through the cracks after the part where Miami was going to send what they thought was Goran Dragic to Dallas, but someone thought it was Kelly Olynyk and Derek Jones Jr. instead, instead, and then that got thrown off, and then they incorporated the Hassan Whiteside trade with Portland um, and added the Clippers into a four-team trade and ended up making it work. But nonetheless, we got to start with Jimmy Butler. Um, the key components there, Josh Richardson went to the Sixers, Jimmy Butler into the Heat. And Jimmy Butler, and then we'll get into the second part of the signing trade in a second, but Jimmy Butler, you, know, you look at this Miami Heat team and the culture that they have, everyone discusses the Miami Heat. They, they, they work so hard and they get players into the greatest shape they possibly can and they want to be this tough, hard-nosed playing team that outworks everyone that they play against and wants to be a nightmare for opponents. And no player perfectly epitomizes that more than Jimmy Butler. He's a guy who plays with heart, who plays hard, um, gives it his all every single night. He's a guy who 
um, consistently gets on others, as we saw in Minnesota, he gets on others to play hard and to get to his level of dedication, to get to his level um, of tenacity, of hustle, of toughness, and all of that. So to me, you look at this Miami Heat culture that emphasizes um, getting guys in incredible shape, playing so hard, training so hard, practicing so hard, being the hardest playing, most hard-nosed team in the league, playing tough, playing with hustle. I think you put all those things together and it spews out what Jimmy Butler stands for. And Jimmy Butler is an incredible player. We saw him really carry and be the reason the Sixers made it as far as they did in the playoffs last year. He is a two-way player who still plays at an elite level. He's a guy you can count on to hit the big shot at the end of the game, hit the tough shot, hit the go-to bucket. You, you get the ball to Jimmy Butler in a late-game situation. He thrives off of that. He wants to be the guy who takes that last shot. And as a um, culture setter and to have your featured star perfectly capture everything you are striving for your culture to be and is, I think works out great for the Miami Heat organization. Now, it's a different discussion when you bring up the fact that they, you know, Jimmy Butler is a guy who has gotten hurt in the past, is aging. You know, is he going to be the same player in the fourth year of this four-year $140 million deal? But to me, I don't think it's a question that Miami should have and did make the right move with this trade because, or this sign and trade, because Miami is a destination when it has the cap space for free agents. And until 2021, this team is locked in to a mediocre yet playoff caliber team with the contracts of James Johnson and Kelly Olynyk. And Justice, or excuse me, Justice Winslow's contract is fine. With James Johnson and Kelly Olynyk and Dion Waiters, you look at this team. They they kind of, they had that one season where they um they went on that huge winning streak and just made the playoffs. They locked all those guys in on four year deals after that, and as a result, took themselves out of the picture as far as being major free agent players. And they made the smart move here because. They're going to be major players in free agency in 2021. And a big thing with attracting free agents, and perhaps the most important thing, is having another star for that star free agent to play with. And, you know, people can argue whether Jimmy Butler is someone that players would like to play with or not, but the fact remains, having Jimmy Butler in with this group already when 2021 comes along, to me, that aids and helps Miami's ability to pitch and persuade and be attractive to the many free agents available in that class. You already have a destination major city with an incredible coach, a legendary executive, and now you have another star player to play with. So to me, you cover all your bases as far as being attractive free agents in 2021. And you make yourself better. You know, I, I still think that they're a seven seed team in the East. However, they are still a better version of their team than they were last year by adding Jimmy Butler. And this is no slight to Josh Richardson. Josh Richardson is an incredible two-way player um, who very well one day could end up being near the caliber of someone like Jimmy Butler. 
Um, but this is a move, if it comes down to it, to get Jimmy Butler in there, if it costs you Josh Richardson, based on circumstance and how good Butler is and everything that he strived to be and are going for in 2021, it's no, it's a no-brainer. No question. We look at the second part of the sign-in trade. Hassan Whiteside going out to Portland. Myers Leonard coming to Miami. And then Miami sending out um, a 2023 first-round pick that is protected in some form to ultimately convey as at the le- at the last possible scenario an unprotected first in 2026, that going to the Clippers. Miami now, we talk about acquiring the star before 2021. The fact that that pick has protections that will make it convey at the latest possible date as a 2026 unprotected first, Miami has is out on first-round picks available to trade. They cannot trade any more first-round picks. And so really, let's say they didn't make this move for Jimmy Butler now. They had no way to get a star before 2021. Going back to Hassan Whiteside, we talk about bloated contracts. Hassan Whiteside epitomizes that. He's in the last year of his contract. They had to shed a first to get rid of him. Myers Leonard in the last year of his contract, another bloated contract. A, a big who can stretch the floor and shoot threes. He'll be useful for them off the bench. I can't complain. Um, it Combining that deal to facilitate this ultimate trade with Jimmy Butler, again, no question, you make it happen. Um, looking at the rest of their offseason, let's get into their draft. Tyler Hero, um, in, who they picked in the late lottery at 13. Tyler Hero in Summer League, looked really, really good. And to me, he has a confidence to him um, and a swagger to him that with his style of play, of being this go-to all-around scorer and bucket getter, I think Tyler Hero is going to be a perfect match for this Miami Heat organization and everything that it stands for. I mentioned the whole culture aspect already. I think Tyler Hero is going to be a starting caliber um, scoring two guard in this league. And I think that Miami really killed it with this pick. Um, In the early second round, they traded um, two future seconds to get in there and get KZ Okpala at 32 at the pick that was originally owned by Indiana. Um, I mentioned that they got Myers Leonard in also. So altogether, I think this is a very successful offseason as far as what they got in and Jimmy Butler as a star, getting Hassan Whiteside out, um, and how they did in the draft with Hero and Akpala. They really had to go through some gymnastics with the cap because since they took in Jimmy Butler in that sign-in trade, they were receiving the players signing the new contract in the sign-in trade, so that made them hard-capped, had to stretch Ryan Anderson, um, had to waive a few other players, and are now just $2.5 million below the apron, um, so they are they have some wiggle room there between the hard cap. Um, but you look at this team as a whole. Now have Jimmy Butler in there. Dragic in the last year of his contract. James Johnson at 15 and then 16 million a year. Again, bloated figures. Justice Winslow, Olenek for two more years, Dion Waiters for two more years. I thought that with these contracts um, of Johnson and Olenek, but mostly Dion Waiters, I thought that that would have been a potential match 
as far as a deal for the aforementioned J.R. Smith contract, where um, if he was waived by a certain date, it would only count for they raised it to four million dollars um, in his guarantee with a fifteen million dollar cap hit. So I thought that could have been a nice get out of jail free card, so to speak, for one of those Miami contracts. It didn't work out. Um, Bam Adebayo, I really really like for this team. And moving forward, you have Jimmy Butler. You have Bam Adebayo, Tyler Hero, Justice Winslow, Casey Akpala. They just got in the early second round. So you have nice young pieces in place. You have your star. And moving forward for the summer of 2021, as of now, they would have 68, according to early bird rights, $68.7 million in cap space for that offseason. Now, they would still have to factor in the fact that they will have their first-round pick this year. So, unless that is moved, when they draft and inevitably sign that player, that'll take some of that space away. Um, depending on what they do with Bam Adebayo, because um, he will be a restricted free agent in that summer of 2021 as well. So, we will see what the actual space ends up being, but the fact is, is there is going to be significant cap space available for the Miami Heat in the summer of 2021 to be players for the many max free agents available. And until that point, looking at how they'll be on the court, they'll be better because they have Jimmy Butler in the fold. I think I would still probably slot them as the seven seed, maybe an outside chance that they can get to the six seed, uh, but they'll be a better player. I think Butler's going to fit there perfectly. I like the young pieces in Bam Adebayo and Tyler Hero. So as a whole... I think that they had a successful offseason. Um, and one other thing that I wanted to talk about with this Miami Heat team was, you know, they were brought up as a major potential partner for um, a Russell Westbrook trade and then were mentioned for Chris Paul. I will say this. When it came to Russell Westbrook, you know, the thing with me is this. What, as I mentioned, the 2021 offseason, they're going to be major players to get a max free agent. If I had to make a bet right now, I believe the Miami Heat will be able to sign someone of that loaded free agent class, loaded max free agent class of 2021. I think they'll get someone. So, when discussing it in the realm of Russell Westbrook and Chris Paul, I think you could have talked me into Russell Westbrook um, as far as taking away your space for that offseason to get him in there. I think you could have talked me into that, but barely. I think it makes zero sense for this team to trade for Chris Paul and subsequently take away their ability to be players in the 2021 free agent market. Because Chris Paul, by that point, is not going to be an effective, um, high-caliber NBA player anymore. Um, we look at Paul, he's got three years, he's got $124 million remaining. Chris Paul at that point is not going to be near the caliber of player that you could potentially be acquiring in free agency that summer. I think Russell Westbrook by that point in time um, still will be a productive, high caliber player. But even still, he's going to decline soon after that offseason, so... I was barely on board with Russell Westbrook in the idea of them using their space or trading for him and therefore not being able to have space to use on max free agents in 2021. I think for Paul, it makes no sense. 
because you're trading for a guy who's already started to decline, who's not going to significantly contribute to them being a better team before that summer or past that summer. He'll make sure. Will he make them better? Yes. Significantly, absolutely not. Um, his body is continuously deteriorating. He's still a good player. Don't get me wrong, but he's not. He's a very good player at this point, but he's not a great player. I've said before I'd probably put him around the 25 to 30th best player in the league at best at this point. By 2021, I see him more around 45 or so. And they could get someone in the 2021 free agent market who is in around the 20th, probably 20th, top 20 player in the NBA. So taking away your ability to sign someone in the 2021 free agent market who could at that point in time, along with Jimmy Butler, make you a very good team in the East. Chris Paul is not going to make you a very good team in the East now or then. I, You'd have to incentivize any team taking on Chris Paul's contract with multiple first-round picks. And even then, I don't think it's worth it. Because let's say if you're Miami, you take back Chris Paul, and this will not happen. But in a hypothetical, they would get their own first back from Oklahoma City. Even then, it's not worth it because you're still not going to be able to go out and potentially get that max free agent caliber difference maker because you won't have the space and those draft picks will not produce that type of player. So to me, it makes zero sense for them to be players for Chris Paul because they're perfectly set up to get someone in 2021. And Chris Paul, in the short term and long term, based off of him being in decline and his massive contract, will not be someone who can make you a very good contending team in the Eastern Conference now, then, or at any point in time for the next three years. So I think they would be very foolish, even with being incentivized with draft capital or whatever, to take back Chris Paul and eliminate their 2021 space in doing so. But as a whole, a good offseason for Miami, getting Butler in there, Good draft, only positive things. I think they're well on their way to being major free agent players in the summer of 2021. The next team we want to get into is the Milwaukee Bucks. And the summary that I would give for the Milwaukee Bucks offseason was that an already great team got better. The big concern for them was how much of their free agent talent were they going to be able to retain while still staying under the cap, still staying as competitive as possible, and keeping themselves as the best team in the Eastern Conference? And they maneuvered it so well, really the best that they could, to stay under the tax, to stay super deep, and to retain almost every single bit of that talent that they could. Starting off, Brooke Lopez. Brooke Lopez, I thought, was more important to retain than Malcolm Brogdon. It wasn't a question. Brooke Lopez was so important to this team last season that, to me, with how much interest there would have been in him around the league from so many teams, they had to get him back. And they did so at a very reasonable contract. Four for 52 mil, the AAV per year of 13 mil, obviously in um, escalating order, 
that's a pretty reasonable deal. I expected him to get more per year. I guess getting the full four years lessened the per-year figure, but I thought that was a very reasonable contract on the Bucks' end. Chris Middleton also, they were able to get him back without giving the full five-year max. They got him at 5 for 178, which is less than the Sixers paid Tobias Harris in 5 for 180, and Chris Middleton is a better player than Tobias Harris is. So another win as far as contrasts are concerned for Milwaukee. They were able to stay really deep, and that is something that I think is a huge takeaway from their offseason is that this is a ridiculously deep team. Use their mid-level exception on George Hill at 3-for-29 um, with that third year not being fully guaranteed, which with his age I thought was very, uh, very smart of them to get in that deal. Robin Lopez at the room exception for two years with a player option for the second year. You now have at center the Lopez brothers together. Brooke Lopez, your offense, the guy who makes your offense go. Robin Lopez as your defensive-minded center. Two Lopez's, two different types of centers. One offensive-minded, one defensive-minded. Perfect addition at the room exception. Tons of teams would have loved to have added Robin Lopez at the room exception. Wesley Matthews at two years for 5.2 mil with a player option in year two. Again, you get a guy on the wing who can play defense and shoot threes. You get him for really not much at all. A win. Kyle Korver at the minimum. One of the best sharpshooters there is in the league. Doesn't do really anything outside of that. But having that three-point shooting threat off of your bench. And then another move that I really liked. Dragon Bender, who they signed on a two-year deal at the minimum, non-guaranteed. When you're a team like the Bucks, who's so good and such a contender, and so deep already, using a back-end roster spot on a guy who, yes, he has not shown the ability to be a productive NBA player at all, but I was a huge proponent of Benders in the draft process, a fascinating and intriguing prospect who still, if he puts it together, presents massive upside. And if you're a team like Milwaukee, who's so deep already and is a contender, you can use your 14th roster spot on someone with as much upside as Dragon Bender. It's a no-lose situation. So I'm a huge fan of them making use of their back-end roster spot like that by signing Bender. And you look at this team as a whole now. Eric Bledsoe and George Hill at the 1. Then you have Chris Middleton, your wings. Obviously Giannis, Chris Middleton, Wesley Matthews, Kyle Korver, Dante DiVincenzo, Pat Connaughton, Sterling Brown. And then Thanasis and Tedekumpo, um on the back end of the roster as well. And then you have Ursan Eliasova. You have DJ Wilson, who they should be relying on a pretty good amount this season. The aforementioned Dragon Bender. And then Brooke and Robin Lopez. So you look at this team, and there's nine players at least who are playable in the playoffs. Bledsoe, well, we'll get into Bledsoe in a second, but Bledsoe, Hill, Middleton, Wesley Matthews, Giannis, um, DJ Wilson, Ilyasova, Brooke Lopez, Robin Lopez, Corver in short stretches, Dante DiVincenzo, we'll see what he brings this year, but at minimum, you have nine guys right there who you can play in the playoffs. Now, speaking of the playoffs, Eric Bledsoe is a concern. This is the first year of his four-year $72 million extension, guaranteed at three years for $54 million of that, but he was very bad in the playoffs last year. And they do not have 
the um, safety net of Malcolm Brogdon to come in and alleviate that and be, at points he was last year, the second-best player on Milwaukee in the playoffs last year. He was at points. Uh, so they really need Bledsoe's performance in the playoffs last year to be an abnormality rather than a consistent occurrence because if that's a consistent occurrence, uh, this team is... That's something that they are going to have to, I don't know how they can effectively uh, combat that. That's going to be a major detriment to this team in the playoffs moving forward. Now, George Hill is a very solid backup point guard, but he's aging. He is older. You can't be relying on, you know, if Bledsoe is going to play like that in the playoffs every year, to have George Hill consistently be relied upon if Bledsoe plays the way he did last year. But... That is just a concern. They have to get better production in the playoffs from Eric Bledsoe than they did last year. But as a whole, this already great team with the league's MVP got better. Yes, they lost Malcolm Malcolm Brogdon. We're able to add a first and two seconds with it. But even with losing Malcolm Brogdon, they stayed really deep. They retained Middleton and Lopez, who frankly were more important to retain because uh, you have Eric Bledsoe there at the one, even though the playoff uh, performance is a concern, you have kept Brooke Lopez and Chris Middleton. You are deep at every single position. You have optionality. You have lots of different lineup combinations you could throw out there. And you have some guys in the back end of your roster and Dragon Bender who present a semblance of some out-of-nowhere blossoming and major upside. The Milwaukee Bucks, to me, with Giannis at the helm, the MVP of the entire league, perhaps the league's best player at this point. I would not say that, but he's very, 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 very close. I would put LeBron and Kawhi ahead of him. But you have Giannis, Chris Middleton, Brooke Lopez, Ilyasova, DJ Wilson... Eric Bledsoe, and then all the guys off the bench in George Hill, in Wesley Matthews, Kyle Korver, Pat Connaughton, Dante DiVincenzo, Robin Lopez. This is a deep team that has players with various skill sets. I think they're making the finals. And I'm really looking forward to that series between them and the Sixers, inevitably in the conference finals. I'm very much looking forward to their game on Christmas Day and when they match up during the season. But my early pick to make the finals out of the East is the Bucks because they are a better team than they were last year. They are still a very deep team. I think this team is the team to beat in the Eastern Conference. Now we get to the New York Knicks. Oh boy. An offseason that began with dreams of Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving with lottery-winning number one draft pick Zion Williamson. And, well, those dreams did not occur whatsoever. Coming out of this offseason with Julius Randle, Bobby Portis, Marcus Morris, Todd Gibson, Wayne Ellington, Alfred Payton, drafting R.J. Barrett. All right. There's a lot to unpack here with this Knicks offseason. So, I think that the Knicks made a mistake 
in the route that they took this offseason because they had a chance to create a competitive advantage for themselves that no other team could match with that being a significant amount of salary cap space. They well, Let's go through each individual signing here. Julius Randle, three years, $63 million, with that third year being a uh, team option. Bobby Portis, one year, $15 million, with a team option for the second year at $15.75 million. Marcus Morris, one year, $15 million. Todd Gibson, two years, um, just below $20 million a year, with a $1 million partial guarantee for the second year. Wayne Ellington, two years, $16 million, with a $1 million partial guarantee for the second year. Alfred Payton, two years, $16 million, with a $1 million partial guarantee for the second year. Reggie Bullock, uh, one year, just under the room exception, at $4 million, with a $1 million guarantee for the second year. All right. So, the first thing you have to take away here is... Why so many power forwards? I don't get it. Julius Randle, Bobby Portis, Marcus Morris, and Todd Gibson. Now, I guess, because looking at their roster, there is no one who is a true center on this team besides Mitchell Robinson. So to me, I think what's going to happen is Todd Gibson is going to end up being the backup center. Um... And then power forward becomes Julius Randle, Bobby Portis, and Marcus Morris. How there's going to be enough minutes for the three of them, I don't know. And you take away the ability, you know, maybe this wasn't something they would have done, but they could have at least tried the idea of playing Knox at the four and Barrett at the three in, um, in little periods of time. But that is clearly not going to happen now. You go through each individual signing, Randall, okay, I can get that. It was a pretty, it's a bit rich to me as far as the contract is concerned, but he was the best player that they signed, so I can understand it, uh, but I thought it was a bit rich. I think the money was a lot. Bobby Portis, I like the player, but if you have Julius Randall already, what's the point? Marcus Morris, one year, $15 million. By that point in time, they had really used almost all of their space. They had they, they used all of their remaining space on Marcus Morris. By that point in time, they had already signed Randall, um, Portis, Todd Gibson, Ellington, and Peyton. So may as well have signed Morris since he had wavered uh, from signing with the Spurs. Todd Gibson, I don't get. I think they would have been much better off re-signing Noah Vonley at a significantly lower rate than what they signed Gibson for. Vonley signed with Minnesota on a one-year deal that was pretty low. I thought he would get a little bit more. He ended up getting $2 million. I thought he could have gotten a little bit more. Turns out he did not. But I'd rather have Noah Vonley, who had a pretty decent season for them last year and is way younger. Obviously, Gibson is 35 years old at this point. I would have kept Vonley at one year for $2 mil rather than paying Todd Gibson one year, $9 million, 
And if they don't keep him for next year, an extra $1 million for next year. So essentially, two years, $10 million with $9 million in the first year and $1 million in the second year. I didn't understand the Gibson signing at all. Uh, Wayne Ellington, I'm fine with that. He shoots threes. I think of all these players, he, I think, is very tradable. $8 million for just this year is a very reasonable salary. With the partial guarantee of only $1 mil for next year, it's more or less a team option. So I think Wayne Ellington for a second-round pick is a very doable trade for the Knicks come trade deadline season. Alfred Payton, I don't like the signing at all. I think they would have been better off signing McConnell for the a contract similar to what he signed with the Pacers. One year, um, $3.5 million with a $3.5 million um, figure in the second year, fully non-guaranteed. Cheaper, and I think would be just as effective. I've never been an Alfred Payton guy. Uh, I think that they, they, first off, they spent $61.5 million. I talked about power forwards. They spent $61.5 million solely on power forwards between Randall Porter, or Randall Portis Morris and Todd Gibson. They would have been better off. I talked earlier about the competitive advantage of salary cap space. So the penalty if you don't reach the cap floor is you simply take the difference between uh, how far to, between where your current uh, team's salary is versus the cap floor, the difference between the two, and you distribute that difference equitably amongst all the players on your team. That, to me, you're going to be paying out the same amount of money regardless. I don't think that that's much of a penalty. You look at the NBA right now, there is no one team that has significant salary cap space that can serve somewhat a, a role of somewhat being the go-to team that you dump salary on for assets. Because the Knicks right now, what their objective should be should be to amass as many assets as possible, whether they be young players, draft picks, whatever it may be, so that they can find talent in all possible ways. Look at how they've done in the second round this year and last year and over the last couple years. Brasdikis in the summer league this year was tremendous. Mitchell Robinson, who they picked in the second round last year, is the best of the young players on the team that were coming... Um, over from last year, and it's not even close. He's the most valuable, and he's the best and most productive. Damian Dotson, who I like on this team as a wing who can shoot, he was a former second-round pick. Alonzo Trier, undrafted last year, and he was an incredible find. He is still on this team. So the Knicks have shown the ability to hit in the second round to find guys who are undrafted. So getting yourself just as many assets as possible, whether if they're second-round picks or first-round picks or young players or whatever, you got to do that because that's the way you're going to find as much talent as possible. If we look at these players that they just signed, I think Wayne Ellington is tradable. Alfred Payton possibly is tradable. I don't think Todd Gibson is tradable. I'm not... I don't think Bobby Portis would get you much back. Maybe you can get something for Marcus Morris... Um, but in doing so, since he has such a high per year figure, you'd have to take back a pretty sizable contract for the next season. So, I don't know. To me, if they had kept their space open, 
to such a great extent that they would have been able to take in a lot of bad money. And in doing so, made sure that they took on bad money that expired prior to the offseason in the summer of 2021, which at the current moment, outside of the rookie options for R.J. Barrett and Kevin Knox, there is no guaranteed salary on their books that summer. Now, of course, Mitchell Robinson's salary will be guaranteed and picked up. Um, I expect Julius Randle... But Julius Randle will see, potentially not. Mitchell Robinson's very low $1.8 million will be picked up. I'm sure that they'll... They're, they're not going to go into that offseason with the blank slate of salary that they're at right now. But the point is, is for two years, for this season and next, they could have gone into this. You know, let's take away Todd Gibson. And let's take away Bobby Portis. And let's take away Alfred Payton. That's $32 million right there. You could still have signed Julius Randle, Marcus Morris, Wayne Ellington. And that would have been $32 million more. And with $32 million, look at what teams like the Nets had been able to do with having space open. They got D'Angelo Russell that way. They did the deal with Denver last year and uh, Kenneth Fareed, taking on Kenneth Fareed and Darrell Arthur. Look at the Hinky Sixers. Look at Travis Schlenk and the Hawks. When you have the space, you give yourself so many options to get such a variety of assets and to continuously be a player in nearly any trade because you can take on almost any salary you want. Look how incredible of a job the Sixers did under Sam Hinkie when they had that space in taking on assets at a tenacious rate. Look at that Sacramento Kings trade. Salary cap space alone... Got them two pick swaps um, and Nick Stauskas at the time. And the unprotected pick, which they then traded um, in the Markel Fultz trade. The ability to use your salary cap space to add bad money with assets attached to it is the best way that the Knicks could have made use of that space. Bobby Portis is not a long-term piece for this Knicks team. Marcus Morris is not a long-term piece for this Knicks team. Todd Gibson is definitely not a long-term piece for this team. Wayne Ellington is not a long-term piece for this team. Alfred Payton is not a long-term piece for this team. The only long-term piece out of everyone they signed this offseason is Julius Randle. Potentially. And if you trade any of these guys, I don't think you're getting a first... I don't think that any of these players traded would get you a first round pick. I'd be frankly stunned. So your hope is turning them into second round picks. And if you had kept the space open, I am sure that at some point between this year and next year, you could have taken on bad salary that would have gotten you a first round pick. This offseason alone, Mo Harkless, a good player making $11 million a year. The Clippers, just by having space, were able to get a first round pick with him. You know, who knows? Maybe you know th- this would have gone in the way of the 2021 offseason. But if um, they could be someone who could take Chris Paul off of Oklahoma City's hands if there's a lot of draft capital attached to it. They could have taken in Russell Westbrook for almost nothing because they would have had, potentially could have had the space to get him. Having that space 
for two years, to me, is almost a guarantee that they would get at least one first-round pick just by taking on bad money. They would definitely be able to get multiple seconds, and they have shown an ability to hit in the second round. And what they're getting out of that salary cap space now, all it's going to do is it's going to make them a little bit better for this season, which serves no purpose. It's going to potentially get in the way of trying out different lineup options with Kevin Knox. And it's not going to bring you the chance to acquire long-term talent that taking on that money in that cap space would. The best that I think they can do with these guys that they have under these contracts is get a couple second-round picks. You know, one for Ellington, maybe one for Peyton. And then maybe one for turning uh, Morris into a contract that's bad for an extra year. They could get better assets and better chances at acquiring talent through using their space to take on bad money. Now, this is also interesting because the Knicks GM is Scott Perry. When Scott Perry was the general manager of the Sacramento Kings, he signed veterans to large contracts while the team was full-scale rebuilding. And to me, signing veterans to decently sizable money while you're full-scale rebuilding is a waste of resources. You're wasting, one, a roster spot, and two, using the space to obtain assets. Now, am I saying that you should never sign a veteran while you're full-scale rebuilding? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is using significant salary cap resources to sign veterans while you're full-scale rebuilding, multiple veteran free agents, I think that's a mistake. When Scott Perry is with the Kings, he signed George Hill uh, to significant money, $19 million a year. Zach Randolph at two years for $24 million. That did not benefit the Kings in any way. For George Hill, to get off of George Hill, they had to trade Malachi Richardson, who didn't turn out to be anything, but still, it was a young player on their team at that time, and it got in the way of him being on their team just to get off of him. Now, they the Knicks were smart in having these $1 million non-guarantees or these team options in year two to give them flexibility and to make these players more tradable because they're, in essence, expiring contracts. But to me, it was an odd pivot. I think they should have kept the space open, maybe have just signed Randall and Ellington and left it at that. Not a fan of this Knicks offseason at all. I think it was a waste of resources, a waste of an ability to acquire assets and talent. Uh... Not the right strategy, I think, for the Knicks this offseason. So, I'm not a fan of the offseason that the Knicks had at all. Up next, we have the Orlando Magic, who basically this offseason went all in on retaining the team that they had last year that barely made the playoffs and won a playoff game in the first round. This Orlando Magic team is, to me, just on a collision course with sustained mediocrity. Now, okay, they re-signed Nick Vucevic coming off of an all-star season. They re-signed Terrence Ross coming off of an incredible season. Made sure that Vucevic's per-year salary cap figures are in descending order. 28 mil for this year, 26, 24, and 22. Similarly to how they structured Aaron Gordon's contract. Terrence Ross's contract structured similarly to how the Nets structured DeAndre Jordan's, where it's relatively flat 
the largest figures in year two and the lowest is in year four. 12.5 this year, 13.5 the second year, 12.5 the third year, 11.5 the fourth year. Uh, they signed Alfaruq Aminu for the full mid-level exception with a player option in the third year of that contract. They re-signed Ken Birch, who I actually liked a lot. Was a pretty attractive option, I think, as a backup center on this market at two years and $6 million. Very reasonable figure. Brought back Michael Carter-Williams. They went all in on a team that really, to me, is completely stuck in the middle. And, you know, perhaps that was an option that appeals to them. But are they significantly better? No. Are they worse? No. They're pretty much the same exact team as they were last season. They waved and stretched Temefe Mozgov. They drafted Chumo Okiki at 16. Okiki uh, tours ACL in March Madness, so he probably won't be a factor this season, but he was someone who a lot of people in the draft process were high on. I wasn't crazy about him, but a lot of people really, really liked him. He went 16th to Orlando. Look, this team, the Orlando Magic, to me it appears this team just wants to make the playoffs, and that's their only objective, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But this team is on a collision course to being stuck in the middle for years to come. They are, to me, a team that screams as being the perpetual eight seed. That is until next year when Atlanta and Chicago are playoff quality teams for the 2021 or 2020-2021 seasons. I think the Hawks and Bulls will be playoff caliber teams then. But for this year... They went all in, again, on a team that just barely got in the playoffs last year, lost in five games in the first round. And look, they're going to make the playoffs. That was their goal. Kudos to them. But I don't see a path for this team to get to a true contending level now that they have money locked up long-term in Vucevic, three years of Aaron Gordon, four years of Terrence Ross, three years of Alvaruq Aminu. Um, Jonathan Isaac, I like a lot. I think a way that this Magic team can improve is if Jonathan Isaac takes the leap to another level. I think he's a sneaky candidate for someone who could take, a, to a lesser extent, a Siakam-like jump. I think he's a guy who has the ability to play and take his game to another level. Will he? I don't know, but that's someone I look at as a potential breakout candidate. Looking at the rest of this team, Mo Bamba, I really don't know. Mo Bamba last year dealt with injuries, was really a non-factor. You now have Nick Vucevic signed for four years at over $100 million. Coming off of an all-star season, is Mo Bamba someone that they look to trade one for one for another young player who fits a positional need more? That's something that's um, a question mark for me because there's really no long-term future for Mo Bamba as a significant part of this Magic team. Markel Fultz, I said this at the time and stand by it, I think the Magic would have been better off keeping that OKC pick and keeping Cleveland second for this year than trading for Fultz. At this point, he does not look like he's going to be an NBA contributor, and I, it would not stun me. He has a, his fourth-year option in his rookie contract for $12 million the year after this, it would not stun me if that gets declined by the Magic. But in their minds, you know, with that OKC pick now pretty much turning into multiple seconds, they basically just traded three second-round picks to get Fultz. And in their mind, if the upside of 
him being the player that he was drafted to be is there, then you trade three second round picks for that. I would have kept the three second round picks, but I get their thinking. Uh, but nonetheless, I don't think he's going to be a long-term factor for this team. So again, you look at this Magic team, where they'll have a chance to have some money uh, to sign players. Evan Fournier will be done. Really, I, I'm looking at it. Evan Fournier at 17.15. He'll pick up that option for 2020-2021. So you'll have Fournier for two years. But even still, you have Vucevic, Gordon, and Ross at large figures. Aminu will be at 10 mil by that point. I just This team doesn't really have a way to add much talent. They're kind of stuck in the middle, and you know maybe they can get in the playoffs each year as an eight seed and lose in the first round because that's really the only ceiling I see for this team moving forward. You know, good for them if they want to get in the playoffs every year, but I don't think that there's much to it. This is a team that's a perpetual eight seed as constructed and has little ability to add talent that'll take them to a level above that. Next, we have the Philadelphia 76ers. And what an interesting offseason this was for this team. Jimmy Butler signed and traded. Josh Richardson brought in. J.J. Redick gone. Al Horford signed for four years, 97 mil. Guaranteed with $12 million in non-guarantees in the fourth year, depending on their team's success and whatnot. Re-signing Ben Simmons to a five-year, $170 million extension to kick in in the season following the upcoming season, trading 24 and 33 to get up to get Matisse Thybul, trading out of the second round nearly entirely, besides taking Mariel Shayok at the end to get in on a two-way contract, signing Tobias Harris for five years for $180 million, using the room exception on Mike Scott, getting James Ennis back at a figure slightly above the minimum, signing Kyle O'Quinn, Raul Neto, and Furkan Korkmaz at the minimum, signing Trey Burke at the minimum, signing Shake Milton for three years with a team option for year four. Lots of moves there. So now you look at the Sixers team. This is the final form of the Sixers process. This is it. Tobias Harris is locked in. He now has to become the man as far as being their go-to perimeter scorer. Al Horford, locked in. I get the signing. They put themselves in a situation where they will continuously have a major presence at the five if Embiid is not playing. Horford and Embiid with Embiid or Horford next to Embiid at the four, I think works. Horford's best position, as great as he is at the five, is probably the four. He can hit open threes. He plays incredible defense. He can score in the post. He's a great teammate. I like the fit with Horford next to Embiid. Ben Simmons, look, we can say all we want about his jump shot or not having a jump shot or whatever. Look, I don't think it's realistic to sit here and say that you want Ben Simmons to be able to hit a three consistently or or have a consistent jump shot because, frankly, I don't think that's ever coming. The thing to me that's more important is is the free throws, because for someone of his size and his speed and his athleticism, that's an unguardable player, especially going downhill, and if he can just force fouls continuously like Embiid does and hit free throws at a high rate and not be a liability at the free throw line, that's a very, very, very good player who's very difficult to guard. 
Josh Richardson, I think, fits this team perfectly. He has an edge to him. He plays really good defense. He's a good two-way player. I think there is room for growth in his game to be a very poor man's Jimmy Butler, but still a very, very effective two-man or two-way player. Mike Scott, James Ennis, Kyle O'Quinn. You have a lot of attitude and swagger and edge with those three guys off the bench. I really like that they brought Scott back and Ennis back because I thought they were both incredibly effective for them off the bench last year. Really embody the spirit of the team and everything that they're trying to be as a team with the attitude and the hard playing um, nature that they have and the edge that they have. Zaire Smith was incredible in the summer league. He's athletic. He's a high-level defender. He's a rim-running, above-the-rim threat. If Zaire Smith can hit or can develop a consistent three-point shot that he can hit consistently, Zaire Smith has major upside. Matisse Thybul, I did not like the Sixers' maneuverings in the draft. Uh, Thybul, to me, if he can hit a corner three or a catch-and-shoot three consistently, then fine. He's going to be an above-average defender. But as of now, he's a one-way player, that being defense. I think for the sake of this team and their roster composition, he needs to be able to become a decent to good catch-and-shoot uh, catch three-point shooter. I thought they would have been much better off, you know, turning their draft picks. You know, Carson Edwards at 33 would have been wonderful for them. I think they missed out. I thought they should have kept 24, 33, and 34 and taken three players there. Because to me, as I said in my draft podcast, having picks in the second round for those low, below league minimum rates, you have those guys locked in for multiple years rather than having to continuously add guys to the end of your bench year in and year out on minimum contracts. Carson Edwards would have been great for this team. Lou Dort would have been great for this team. I think there were a lot of options. Daniel Gafford, Bruno Fernando. There were a lot of options that the Sixers could have had at 33 and 34, not to mention pick 24, and they did not take advantage of those options. But we look at this Sixers team. This is the second best team in the Eastern Conference. My concerns with this team, fairly simply, do they have enough perimeter scoring and do they have enough shooting? Is Tobias Harris a guy who can be the go-to number one option who can get you the shot that you need at will when it matters at the end of the game? Because that is now his role. Tobias Harris is the go-to perimeter scorer for the Sixers. He is being paid as such. And based off of roster composition, he is going to be the one who has the ball in his hands at the end of games. He's going to be the one relied on to hit the big shot, to send the game to overtime, or to win the game. He has to be an above-average offensive player who can score all around. Is that the type of player Tobias Harris is? Ben Simmons. Again, I mentioned the jump shot. I don't think that's realistic. But improving the free throws to become an even more unguardable threat would be of a lot of value. I think the Sixers team is not as good as Milwaukee. Their bench is not as good. Their depth is not as good. They lack enough shooting. I think that's going to be exploited in the playoffs. But this is the second best team in the Eastern Conference. We look at their bench at the point guard spot, Raul Neto and Trey Burke. You know, it's unfortunate that they didn't have more space at their disposal to add more talent off the bench. I thought their biggest need after they made the initial moves of Horford, 
re-signing Harris to the figure that they did, uh, getting Richardson back, was having a offensive-minded, offensive park uh, spark plug scoring combo guard off the bench. Again, Carson Edwards would have fit that bill perfectly. Trey Burke is in that role now. Best available option at that point. Uh, they brought back Furkan Korkmaz. You can argue whether it would have been more beneficial to sign someone like a Tabo Cephalosha or a Vince Carter instead of Korkmaz because the thinking around Korkmaz is he's a good three-point shooter when in actuality he really isn't. You check out his three-point percentage year to year. It's around 32-33%. He's really not a good three-point shooter. He's there to merely fill a space at the end of the bench. Uh, Kyle O'Quinn. Having Horford, the dependence on him as a backup center is much less. But O'Quinn, to me, I look at the prototypical backup center in the NBA, and the two players that stand out as that prototype are Ed Davis and Kyle O'Quinn. O'Quinn can rebound. He can play very good defense. He's a good presence in the locker room. Great veteran. Love that signing at the minimum. As a whole, again, they don't have enough shooting. They really have to hope Tobias Harris is an effective, above-average shot creator and scorer for them. Because if he's not, then the Sixers may be in a little bit of trouble. I think based off of the um, volatility in their um, maneuverings this offseason where they signed and traded Butler for Richardson and then were an under-the-cap team and then signed Al Horford and all of their exceptions were varying as a result. You know, they had a path where they could have operated as an over-the-cap team by re-signing Butler and Redick, but then they went under-the-cap to sign Horford and let Redick walk and sign and traded Butler for Richardson. There was a lot of moving parts with the Sixers offseason. There were a lot of exceptions that were there, and then they weren't there. If they were over-the-cap, they had the mid-level exception, the biannual exception, then they had the room exception. They really... You know, they didn't have a ton of options once they signed the Horford deal because there is very little cap space remaining. But all things considered, this Sixers team is a significantly different team than what it was last year. It is the uh, fourth, like really since last October, this is the fourth incarnation of this team. You went from the Dario, Bob, Ben Simmons, the, you know, the team that carried over from uh, 2017-2018 to the team that had Jimmy Butler to then the team that had Jimmy Butler and Tobias Harris and now you have the team with Al Horford, Tobias Harris, Josh Richardson and no J.J. Redick. So after really shuffling the decks on this team multiple times within less than a year, in less than a year there have been four different or three or three different incarnations of the team just last year. Now in less than a year this is the fourth incarnation they're locked into this team. This is the final form. Um, as far as the contracts, going back to them again, I thought it was very smart of them to have Horford's contract be descending per year because based on his age, there is the potential for this team or this Horford contract to become an albatross eventually. You know, I would have been very comfortable if it were two or three years. That would not have gotten him. Four years makes me a little worried with Horford. You know, he's 33 years old. He's, what's he going to be in year three and four? So the larger hit this year is a negative in the short term because it'll dis, it uh, disallowed them the ability to have more space to add guys on the bench. But in the long term, I think it's a positive 
because, again, it could end up being an albatross later on. Back to Tobias Harris. In a vacuum, is Tobias Harris a five-year, $180 million player? He's not, no, but the Sixers had to keep him, so it's a fine deal. They weren't keeping him any other way. As a whole, they had a lot of moving parts this offseason. Lots of, as I mentioned, volatility between being over the cap and then under the cap and how they were going to operate. Is the team that they have now better than the team that they had uh, the third incarnation of the team that ended the season last year with Embiid, Harris, Butler, Reddick, Simmons as their starting five? Is this team better than that team? No, I don't think it is. I think that the team with Simmons, Reddick, Butler, Harris, and Embiid is better than the group they have now. But based off of Reddick getting two for over 26 with New Orleans, Butler, you know, I, I we don't know if the Sixers were intent on getting rid of Butler no matter what or if he wanted to leave. The ability to bring back that team was not realistic. It was not going to happen. But just in comparison, for comparison's sake, this is not a better team than that team last year. This team went all in on size, uh, has to really hope that they get production from certain players for perimeter scoring and shooting. Still a very good team, not quite as good as the team that they had at the end of the year last year. I'm very interested to see how this team works together, very fascinated by what they're going to look like. Ultimately, they're the second best team in the East to me, and I think Milwaukee is better and is deeper, but the Sixers will still be a very productive team and very good team this season. All right, two teams to go here on this uh, Eastern Conference offseason recap episode of After the Final Whistle. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Let's keep it going. We've got two more teams to go. Let's go to the Toronto Raptors, the reigning, defending, undisputed NBA champions. Shout out to Paul E. Look, Kawhi Leonard is no longer there, and the pivot that they made this offseason uh, with the moves that they made, the signings they made, I thought they did a very smart job. And I would expect nothing less from Masai with being the talented GM and executive president, because Bobby Webster is the GM, uh, the very talented basketball executive and president of basketball operations that he is. You still have Kyle Lowry, Marcus Gasol, and Serge Ibaka in there as expirings. Norman Powell still there, two years and then a, t- a player option in the third year. Fred Van Vliet with one year remaining and then will be an unrestricted free agent. That could get messy. I wonder what type, uh, what type of contract he'll command after this season. You have your uh, star for the long term after his emergence last year in Pascal Siakam. The best player on a contending team, no, but a star nonetheless. I expect Pascal to be an all-star this year. You look at the signings they made as far as pivoting once Kawhi did not stay. They re-signed Pat McCaw, two years, $8 million, a flat $4 million a year cap hit. I like that. You know, how good is Pat McCaw? I don't think we really know. But I think, to me, I view Pat McCaw as a decent, you know, eighth, ninth man, like ninth man on your bench. Nothing special, but a solid player who can give you minutes, can play some defense, can shoot a little bit. Nice for bench depth, and he's young. Stanley Johnson, two years uh, with a team option for the second year. 
making 3.6 this year, then 3.8 if he picks up that player option for the second year. I've always liked Stanley Johnson. I think I've always wanted Stanley Johnson to finally be able to shoot threes consistently. At this point, I don't think that's coming. Still a plus defender, a good wing to have off of your bench, albeit if one who is not a good three-point shooter, and that would really take his game or would have taken his game to another level. But a plus defender, he's still young, uh, two years at 3.6, and then if slash when he picks up the player option at 3.8, sure, fine. Uh, My favorite signing that they made this offseason, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson. I have really liked Rondé Hollis-Jefferson. Shout out to Philadelphia um, with the Brooklyn Nets. Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, he plays hard. He's a great rebounder. Uh, He bulked up and is really good as a four um, or a small five in the post. Uh, I think he's a perfect bench option, someone who plays with energy, who plays hard, who gets after it on the boards, can finish around the rim. As like an eighth man off your bench, I think you can do much worse. Eighth, ninth man type. Again, they got him for one year at $2.5 That's nothing getting him in there. I thought that was a fantastic signing. Still super young. Someone who, to me, every time you watch the Brooklyn Nets over these last few years, building out their culture, the building out the organizational infrastructure that ultimately attracted Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, Rondé Hollis-Jefferson had been there since they traded for him on draft night with Portland um, for Mason Plumley. I really like Hollis Jefferson, uh, and I think he's going to be a very effective bench four slash five for the Toronto Raptors. And you look at this team moving forward, Lowry, Gasol, and Ibaka, you know, I, I'd be pretty surprised if the three of them are on the team after this year. Powell, you have signed for what's going to be three more years, but you have Siakam as your long-term star, OG Anunobi, who is a very good modern wing who can shoot and can play high-level defense. You have him for two more years on his rookie contract. I really like OG. Fred Van Vliet, I am interested to see what type of contract he commands as a free agent this coming offseason, an unrestricted free agent at that. If he has another good year, if he performs like he did in the playoffs, I could see it become a situation where he prices himself out of their long-term plans. You know, I'm not saying it's a definite or a foregone conclusion, but I could see that possibly happening. Uh, but for sure, you have Siakam and you have OG Anunobi as your long-term pieces. I thought they made a very smart, proactive move after Terrence Davis, who went undrafted, lit it up for Denver in the summer league in one game. Toronto went in and signed him right away giving him a guarantee in year one, uh, just under one mil with a non-guaranteed 1.5 mil in year two. I thought that was a very smart, proactive move by Toronto to swoop in there and get Terrence Davis after he lit up that first summer league game playing for Denver summer league team. Overall, a solid offseason, a good pivot by Toronto, you know, making smaller signings of guys who are young, who can be solid depth off the bench, like Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, like Stanley Johnson re-signing Patrick McCaw, uh, not doing anything too crazy, you know, keeping Lowry, Gasol, and Ibaka in place for the coming year. This team, when they played last year when Kawhi was not on the court, was incredibly good. They went 17-5 and when Kawhi was not playing for them last year. He was part of their middle-level exception. Again, going to get Terrence Davis, getting in there and getting Matt Thomas also 
Um, they signed Cameron Payne, who is still around somehow. As a whole, though, as I said, this was a smart pivot by Toronto. I think that they're in the mix in between the three and six seed in the East this coming year. I would probably put them closer to five or six than I would to three or four. Uh, but it remains to be seen. Again, they're in that mix with Boston, Brooklyn, Indiana. I would bet five or six, but we shall see. Nonetheless, this is a playoff team for the coming year. They made a smart move pivoting to signing guys like Johnson, Hollis Jefferson, and McCaw. They have their veterans in there as expiring so they can play out one more year with and see how far they go, or if there's good value gettable for them, trading them for some assets. We shall see. But you have Siakam for the long term as your star. OG Anunobi as a great running mate as well. We'll see what happens with Van Vliet after the season. But I have no concerns with Toronto's long-term future. I think Masai is the perfect executive to be at the helm here. Uh, and I'm very interested to see how they continue to make moves and build for the future um, throughout the season and in next year's offseason in 2020 as well. And now we go to the last team in the Eastern Conference, the Washington Wizards. First off, shout out to Sashi Brown the new chief planning officer of the Washington Wizards. The Wizards recently restructuring into monumental basketball with Tommy Shepard as GM, Sashi Brown as chief planning officer, uh, Dr. Medina, formerly of the Sixers, now in charge um, of the training staff. John Thompson brought in the former Georgetown coach. Big restructuring there. Tommy Shepard had been the interim GM charting the path leading away this offseason. And look, let's go to the basketball side of this thing because this restructuring, bringing in Sashi Brown, whatever, it's all great. But what matters is what is in the pipeline? What does this team have at their disposal as far as their team is concerned? They have the anchor of John Wall's contract, which if John Wall never gets healthy and returns to form is the worst contract in the NBA the Supermax kicking in, the four-year 170 kicking in this year. The Jan Mahimi contract finally in the last year as an expiring contract. CJ Miles in there as an expiring contract acquired for Dwight Howard from Memphis. They re-signed Thomas Bryant for three years at $25 million. I like Thomas Bryant. This was too much money. Davis Bertans, they got him from San Antonio. San Antonio traded him to Washington to create a trade exception, which they took in Damari Carroll with to then be able to use their mid-level exception on Marcus Morris. Unfortunately, Morris reneged and went to the Knicks, but that is how Washington got Davis Bertans. Fine acquisition for Washington. Bertans is a four who can shoot threes. They got him for basically nothing. Why not? Ish Smith at two years for $12 million. I don't really like them letting Thomas Sadoransky walk and signing Ish Smith um, for $4 million less a year. I would definitely rather have Sadoransky, his size, his defensive ability over Ish Smith. I would rather have devoted the money towards Sadoransky than Smith and towards Thomas Bryant. Uh, but nonetheless, they have Smith in there on two years for $12 million. Not crazy about that. They selected Rui Hachimura at ninth overall. I like Hashimura. This was too high for him. There were many better options available at that point than Hachimura. Troy Brown, who the previous regime under Ernie Grunfeld selected, 
um, 15th overall, I believe, in 2018, which was also too early for him. They helped out the Lakers, and in doing so, acquired uh, Mo Wagner, um, Isaac Bonga, and a second-round pick, Jamario Jones, was in there also. Wagner, a former late first-round pick in 2018. Isaac Bonga, a second-round pick in 2018 also. And they got a second-round pick with it. If you're the Wizards, you take a flyer on players like that. Why not? And you get a second-round pick. Why would you not do that trade? If they don't pan out to anything, no-lose situation. If they're good, great. Wagner has some offensive upside. Uh, Bonga is still very raw. But again, it's a no-lose situation. If you can get something out of Bonga um, or Wagner, great. And if not, you got a 2023 second-round pick. They signed Isaiah Thomas. Uh, again, I, I'm just out on Isaiah Thomas at this point. Uh, but they got him in there on the minimum. Admiral Schofield in the second round, I thought that was a nice, solid pick. As a whole, you look at this Wizards team. If Bradley Beal was not on this team, this, to me, would be the worst team in the NBA. I think they would be worse than Charlotte if Bradley Beal was not on this team. Uh, I think that Washington has missed and is missing a significant opportunity to maximize their return for Bradley Beal in a trade. I know that they want to extend him. I know that they're making him a significant um, voice in their decision-making process, catering to him in every single way. But this team is in for a long-term rebuild. And Bradley Beal is really, really, really good. And I just don't think that Bradley Beal is going to re-sign for an extension long-term with Washington. And I think that had they made Beal available or were willing to listen to offers, they weren't even willing to listen to um, interest in uh, trading Bradley Beal when teams would come to them. I think that if they had traded Beal this offseason, they could have gotten themselves a very significant return, one, and two, Beal has two years left on his contract. The longer you hold on to Beal, the more his value declines. If we get to a point next year where Beal kind of becomes what Paul George was with Indiana, where he says, or it's known that, hey, he's not going to resign here and he only wants to go to place XYZ, as far as he'll only resign with places X, Y, and Z therefore lessening the amount that teams are willing to trade for Beal in return, then Washington really screwed themselves because they lost out on a massive opportunity to get a big return for him this offseason and will be restricted in the return they can get for him because he'll only have one year left and teams that may be interested will not be because he's not willing to re-sign long-term with that team. If you had traded him this offseason, whatever team would be getting him would have been getting two full seasons of an elite, all-star, scoring machine two-guard. Tons of teams would have had interest in him. You could get a ton of very interesting offers and packages. You know, a team like Denver, I think, could present a really interesting offer. Who knows if a team like the Clippers would have been willing to offer um, a scaled-down version of what they offered for Paul George to get him as Kawhi's running mate? I don't know. We can theorize about all these things. But I maintain that whether it was around the draft, whether it was coming into free agency, 
This was the time for Washington to trade Bradley Beal because he had two full years left and it would have eliminated the risk of him not wanting to resign there and making it known with one year left on his contract, hey, I only want to go to places X, Y, or Z. So if you trade for me, I'm not going to resign with you. And therefore, those teams don't want to trade as much to get him or don't want to trade for him at all because they know he's not going to be there long term. Now, it is also possible that they could make the Beal sweepstakes a big part of this year's trade deadline. And potentially that could get done before it becomes known that Beal would have interest in destinations X, Y, or Z, and teams are still waiting to trade or still willing to trade a huge amount for him. There is no real gettable star for trade out there on the market. There are a lot of teams with ammo at their disposal looking for that one more star. I think Denver, as great as they are, would benefit significantly by trading for Beal. Portland and just going with Dame McCollum and Beal all out scoring, I think, would benefit from trading for him. You know, if you go to the trade deadline and New Orleans is playing really well with all those picks they have at their disposal, you could get a nice package from New Orleans. I think that Washington really needs to look themselves in the mirror here and realize, hey, we don't know if this guy is going to resign. And even still, we're a terrible team. We're stuck with John Wall's anchor of a contract. Let's see what returns we can get for Bradley Beal. Because I think that there are massive deals out there for Beal. And trading him this offseason would have maximized their return for him. And I think that is a significant missed opportunity for them uh, this offseason. Now, as far as John Wall is concerned, as I said, if he never gets healthy, never returns to form, this is the worst contract in the NBA. Trading... Beal and attaching Wall, uh, lessening the return for Beal, but getting off of Wall, I don't really think that's that realistic. Uh, I don't think that that is a route that would be taken if such a trade for Bradley Beal were to occur. I think they're just stuck with John Wall and just have to hope for the best in the sense that he can get healthy and return back to form. You look at the rest of this Wizards team, you know, Thomas Bryant had a nice year, but again, I mentioned three years for 25 mil, I think that's too rich. There's lots of interesting pieces on this team. Hachimura, interesting. Uh, Wagner, interesting. Troy Brown, interesting. Um, regardless of if they were picked too early or not. Admiral Schofield, solid pick in the second round. They have this year coming in, they'll have their own first, which will be very high. They're going to have a high second round pick because they're going to have the better of Chicago or Memphis's second round pick. Um, Memphis, I think, is one of the bottom five, six teams in the league, even though they had a great offseason, which I'll detail in the Western Conference podcast. That's going to be a team that's going to have a high second-round draft pick. They replenished um, to a little bit. They were able to, when trading Sadoransky, um to Chicago, they were able to kind of improve their second-round pick um, ammunition a little bit. But as a whole, this offseason, I think it was a bit of a weird offseason for them. Picking Hachimura ninth, a reach, even though I liked Hachimura, a reach by probably about four or five picks. Not trading Beal, I think will end up being a mistake. The use of their cap resources to re-sign Bryant and then to sign Ish Smith and to not re-sign Thomas Sadoransky and then signing Isaiah Thomas for the minimum, I thought was kind of weird. You now look at this team as far as the rotation is concerned. John Wall's not going to play at all this year. 
So you have, as far as your rotation from one to five, at the point guard spot, you have Ish Smith, Isaiah Thomas, and Justin Robinson. At the two, you have Bradley Beal, Tarek Phillip, and Admiral Schofield. At the three, you have Troy Brown, CJ Miles, and Isaac Bonga. At the four, you have Davis Bertans and Rui Hachimura. And then at the five, you have Thomas Bryant, Mords Wagner, and Jan Mahimi. And then with your 15 spot is the injured John Wall. Um, Jordan McRae and Jamario Jones are in there as non-guaranteed money right now. I don't think they're making this team. Right there, um, that's 14 players. And then you add in John Wall gets you to the 15-man roster. Take away Bradley Beal from that group. That is a really bad team. And having Beal play on a team like that, first off, he's going to put up huge numbers. But secondly, you're this terrible team that without Beal would be the worst team in the league. Even with Beal, you're going to be one of the worst four or five. I don't know. I just, again, it goes back to the fact that I think they're making a mistake in having not traded Beal while he had two years left on his contract trading him this offseason. I think they made a mistake in not doing so. I expect the Wizards to be, I think Cleveland will be worse than them, and I think Charlotte will be worse than them, but I think they're the third worst co- uh, worst team in the Eastern Conference. Um, I think ultimately are the fourth, or in the bottom four or the bottom five as far as the worst teams in the league are concerned. They're definitely the third worst team in the East is where I'd put them. You take Bradley B off this team, you could very well make the argument they'd be the worst team in the East. I think they probably would be. Very interested to see the long term for this Wizards organization with this new brain trust in the front office, with Sashi Brown brought in, with Tommy Shepard as the full-time new GM. I'm very interested to see where this organization goes moving forward. And with that, that is the end of this episode of After the Final Whistle. Again, I am your host, Brad Clear. Thank you for listening to this Eastern Conference offseason recap episode. You can listen to all episodes by going on Apple Podcasts and searching After the Final Whistle with Bradley Clear, B-R-A-D-L-E-Y-K-L-I-E-R, or searching After the Final Whistle with Bradley Clear on podcast.com. Shout out to you, the listener. Expect a Western Conference off-season recap episode uh, coming soon. Again, I'm your host, Brad Clear. Follow me on Twitter at BradClear underscore. Please be sure to check out other episodes of After the Final Whistle on Apple Podcasts or on podcast.com. Shout out to you, the listener. Shout out to the Eastern Conference and the NBA offseason. And as always, goodbye and good night.